Hello and welcome to Media Made, the show in which we year by year explore the movies, music, and TV that most evaded our lives. I am your host, Diamond in the Rough, Rod, and I'm joined by... Pike, not Spike, Jess. I thought a pike was a fish. <laughs> Go home. Hey! I will now be running this podcast by myself. Hey, welcome to Media Made. This is... To explain the show, um, what we have done is we are exploring the movies of 1992 today, and we have looked through a list of every single movie released in 1992. In America. And, uh, we do foreign films sometimes. That's fair. We've done Japanese movies before. Yeah, that's true, true. Um, but we decided which one each of us have seen the most in our lives. This is not our favorite. This is not a... Uh, <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> it, it could be our favorite, but this the, the rules of the show is it's the movie... Each of us have seen the most from start to finish. So, here we are. Um, so, before we get into the movies, uh, I, I, I have asked this for every movie episode for the last few years, but where were you in the year 1992? I was taking my first steps. Wait, no, I wasn't. Hold on. How old was I? Three. <laughs> I was a slow learner. I was three. Probably I talking. Was, yeah, I was definitely talking, but I had nothing to say. Ask my mother. Mm. <laughs> Did you learn to read? Not yet. I don't know. I don't know when I learned to read. I barely know if I know how to read now. I think I learned to read in kindergarten. Kindergarten. Yeah. I feel like I had to have learned to read, read earlier than that because both of my parents are readers and you know, kids just want to do what their parents do. True. Anyway, hey. Oh, hi. <laughs> I can answer this question now. Oh yeah. Where were you in 92? I was born. Woo! I was, I made my mother bedridden for months. Such is the way. I was a product of a cesarean section. <laughs> An emergency one? Yep. Uh, apparently the... Uh, Cord was wrapped several times around your neck, which is why you are so stubborn today. Why well, I have such a long neck. You do have a pretty long neck. Yeah. The better to kiss you with, my dear. Oh, dear. But yeah, I have no memories of 1992. Only what my mom tells me. <laughs> which is, uh, the pregnancy was terrible, and <laughs> she couldn't get out of bed for months. And yet she decided to do it a second time. Mm. <laughs> Mothers, hats off to you, all of you. Mothers, every, every mother out there. <laughs> but anyway, let's let's uh, let's jump into the movies because what was going on in '92 anyway? You know, I think there was an election that year. There uh, might have been, was there? Yeah, yeah. Who became president? Was Bill, it Bill Bush? Clint, Bill Clinton was. Uh, he won the election in '92, and he uh, would become president in '93. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Old Bill Clinton with his saxophone and marijuana. <gasps> but he didn't inhale. We must remember this. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was a condition he said. Anyway, uh, all that to say, it's 92, ladies and gentlemen. Does that mean he had it through brownies? How do you not inhale? Don't min- think too hard about it. Did you eat <laughs> he brownies, He was lying. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have to say. Presidents don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me that. <laughs> the face you just gave me. All right, so let's jump in. We're gonna have some fun today. Uh, we've, it's for some reason, this might be one of our like, like densely packed shows. We have a lot to talk about today. We're gonna do our best to explain it. It's a while smorgasbord also... of quality, but there's everything's noteworthy. It is a charcuterie board of quality. There you go. <laughs> so we're gonna jump in with Jess's movie of 1992, released July 31st, 1992, starring. Christy Swanson, Donald Sutherland, Paul Rubens, Rutger Hauer, Luke Perry, David Arquette, and Hilary Swank. Directed by Fran Rubel Kazooie. Not Banjo. <laughs> Kazooie. <laughs> Written by Joss Whedon. We have 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No, not that one. All right, let me get this straight, okay? You want me to go to the graveyard with you because I'm the chosen one and there are vampires? Yes. Does Elvis talk to you? All right, so quick clarification. <laughs> this is not the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show starring uh, Sarah, Sarah Michelle Geller. Yes. Not Sarah Jessica Parker? Correct. <laughs> or uh, Melissa Joan Hart? <laughs> One of the three named ladies of the time. Right. So this is the movie that preceded it. Yes. It's based on the same concept. Universe. Same person, like, started this, you know, wrote it. Mm-hmm. This is not the same thing. No. Um, in fact, I think, like, I may have stumbled upon, like, the Wikipedia article for this movie mm-hmm. when I was searching for the Buffy, the the TV show at some point in the past. Like, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I was like, there was a movie? Because <laughs> I never watched the show. Never did. But, like, it was, it was like, in the zeitgeist. It, mm-hmm. was, it was uber popular, so you couldn't escape it. And then you realize, there's a movie? <laughs> Tell me, how... How was this your movie of 92? How did you watch this so often? I have great taste. Debatable. You better nod your head, husband. That couch is not going to be comfortable to sleep on. (laughs) Where did you see this? HBO? Stars? I don't know. It was on some mm, DirecTV packaged Mm. (laughs) extra channels. I don't know. I like went through a phase where I watched movies that were B. Very B. Very B. Maybe maybe some C. A little bit of cult movie. <laughs> this this Buffy movie has all of the hallmarks of like the perfect cult movie. Like but. <laughs> it's got camp. Yeah. It's dumb. It's really bad. Like yeah. in interesting ways. It's not boring bad, it's interesting bad. Yes. There's a lot to talk about. I think, like... Bad acting, overacting. I mean, was the acting bad, or was the direction bad, or was it both? (laughs) (laughs) Did they try? Two two people tried. Some people tried. I think, honestly, okay, so I, I was into movies like this before I realized that, like, cult was a thing you know like oh cult classics they're probably like so you can you guys kids you can totally tell by some of my movies right like better off dead like other things that i'm like i just went through a phase where i was like i don't hate this i'm gonna watch it again like there was something about it that it was like it was me finding like my taste and you know enough about me that there's a lot of stuff that i'll say like i don't hate it but that doesn't mean i like it or i love it It or you think it's good yeah it's just i don't hate it and sometimes i have to like give myself more and more time with it to decide what that actually means yeah and that's why I watched it so much. Were you a kid? Like a teenager? I was a teen. College? Yeah, I was a teen because I didn't have direct TV in college. My parents paid for that mess. Mm, all right. <laughs> well, um, the the production of this movie is quite interesting, not just because it spawned a very successful TV show. That's part of the reason. But, like, just the making of it's interesting. And yeah. uh, it all starts with one man, and that man's name is Joseph Hill Whedon. What? His name is Joseph Hill Whedon? yes. Joseph Hill Whedon was born June... <laughs> Are we going to say his whole name the whole time? <laughs> no. Let's do it. He was born June 23rd, 1964 in New York City. He was a third generation TV writer. His grandpappy was a TV writer. Dang. His pappy pappy was a grand... Dang. Yeah, his daddy and his daddy's daddy both wrote for television. Uh, his father Tom wrote for shows like Alice and the Golden Girls in the 80s. And his grandfather John wrote uh, shows wrote for shows like The Donna Reed Show and The Dick Van Dyke Show. 
Can we like do that with our kids? Can we just be writers of writers of writers? I mean, I have to be a successful writer first. All right. I, mean, Same. W- I mean, what if we start like a podcasting dynasty? No. Like in, in 40... Because immediately I thought Duck Dynasty and that is not us. <laughs> in 40 and 50 years, someone can say they're third generation podcasters. <laughs> oh, I don't like it. Hey, kids. That's terrifying. <laughs> Would you like to be in the third generation? <laughs> what? Star Trek? <laughs> All right, anyway, from 1989 to 1990, Joseph, known professionally as Joss. I, I, it's good to know that his name is actually Joseph because I call him Josh all the time. It's not Josh. I don't care. Joss. Josh Wheaton. Uh, he worked as a staff writer on the sitcoms Roseanne and Parenthood. Is he related to Will Wheaton? No, that's uh, Wheaton. Oh, okay. I enjoy Will Wheaton. Uh, he also worked as an uncredited script doctor on films like The Getaway, Speed, Waterworld, and Twister. I've seen none of those movies. Uh, some of those movies came out after 1992, but those are the type of things he would do. He would be brought in for like a... Fixing it up. Yeah, like a... Making it a little more pitchy. Like punchy. B, B-tier blockbuster, you know? Like make it punchy with his brand of like humor and mm-hmm. witty dialogue. Right, right, you know, right. You, Tarantino did the same thing when he was breaking into the industry. And I think like the trajectory of Joss Whedon and Tarantino are very similar. They be in the industry? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Joss Whedon sold his first script in 1991, and that script was for a teen horror comedy titled Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And boy, is this both horrible and comical. Uh, developed from an earlier concept called Rhonda the Immortal Waitress. Oh. Yeah. Oh, immediately I want to watch that. <laughs> Buffy was written to invert the Hollywood formula of the, quote, little blonde girl who goes into a dark alley and gets killed in every horror movie. So it was sort of like, I feel like it has the same energy as like Scream, right? Mm -hmm. From the late 90s where like horror tropes had become passe. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the the slasher genre was like at the all time high in the 80s. And by the late 80s, uh, like slasher horror was like really lame. Right. Uh, Jason, Freddy Krueger. Halloween, they were all like cartoons by that point. Mm-hmm. And so it was more fun to make fun of horror movies than it was to make, make horror movies. Actual horror movies. Got so it. that's why you got Scream and you got like Wes Craven's uh, The New Nightmare, which is just a subversion of Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Um, and even like the Child's Play movies, like the first Chucky? Th- Chucky. The first three are like pretty straight horror movies. Mm hmm. Then they just get weird and subvert the formula. Like, you know, Bride of Chucky and mm-hmm. Seed of Chucky. It's, it's weird. Anyway, so... I don't watch any of the movies that you've named. That's fine. <laughs> but that, that's the, uh, the culture of horror at the time. Yeah. In the early 90s. Uh, Whedon said he wanted to, quote, subvert that idea and create someone who was a hero. Huh. So he wanted to take the damsel in distress, the, the, you know, the last girl trope mm-hmm. or whatever, make her the hero. Oh. I mean, that's nice. Yep. So that script was sold to Dolly Parton's production company, Sand Dollar. Okay. This movie was made with Dolly Parton money. I mean, that sounds like something that Dolly would pack. I'm not even going to joke. She's like, mm, a waitress doing her nine to five while also slaying dead people? Yes. The Emoto Take waitress. my money. <laughs> also, can I just say Rhonda, the nighttime racist, just immediately made me think of Rhonda from Hey Arnold, waitressing. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear, indeed. Uh, so yeah, and then the movie was uh, distributed by 20th Century Fox, and uh, you know, even even 30 years ago, uh, 20th Century Fox were meddling in artists' work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Wait, does that mean Disney owns Buffy the movie now? They might. Distribution-wise, maybe. 
Well, I don't think they'll try to distribute. Yeah, I, I don't know who. <laughs> I don't know. That that is an interesting question. A director writer by the name of Fran Brubel Kazooie. Uh, she was known for writing and directing the 1988 movie Tokyo Pop. Uh, discovered the script for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, along with her husband Kaz, secured funding for the film. She then worked with Whedon to further develop the Buffy character, uh, but her vision for the tone of the movie was ultimately different from what Whedon had in mind. Oh, I couldn't tell. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you've seen the Buffy show, you know the tone that yeah. Josh... That's the, the crazy... Even th- if you haven't seen the show, you had no clips and you know you're just like... You know Joss Whedon's voice as yeah. a writer. It's like you hear stories about how, like, because th- this is a pretty like standard Hollywood practice. You turn in a script, like the writer. There, I've always been told there are three versions of a movie before it's released. Right? Mm-hmm. There's the movie that's written. There's the movie that's shot. And there's the movie that's edited and released. Mm-hmm. Right? And those three movies can be vastly different from each other. Right? Right? And like, if you're a young writer and you submit your script and it's bought by a studio, like that movie's not yours anymore. The vision, it's whatever they want. You know, it's whatever the director chooses to do with it and whatever the editor decides to do with that. Right. So this is, you know, pretty common at the time. So there's a lot of like, oh, we'll never see this version of this movie. You right, know, like right. some writer, will, some bitter writer will say like, this could have been a great movie. Yeah. I had such a great script. That was the, it was the hottest script in Hollywood and they ruined it. Right. Mm-hmm. You hear about it all the time. It's very uncommon to be able to see what was made initially and then actually see what the vision really was. Right, right. right. And we're getting it here with Buffy. Yeah. We get to the see t- what Joss Whedon's vision was the whole time with the TV show. Yeah. And you get to see how... How and, Hollywood just puts their fingers in it and messes it up. How an overbearing um, director or, like, who has their own agenda... Mm-hmm. Not, not agenda, like, has a bad connotation, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. they, they have their own vision, right? Yeah. And they're, they're... They're artists in their own right. And she, this, you know, this director was already established. She mm-hmm. had her own vision, so she took precedent. And then you have an overbearing studio, like 20th Century Fox, and, and you know, putting even more power over it, right? Right. So I just think it's... It's quite the luxury to be able to see what the writer's real vision was. Yeah. So here we go. <laughs> Filming. We're, but we're not going to see his real vision yet. <laughs> no, we're gonna, no. We're, we're going to see the bastardized uh, version of it. Again, we're talking about the 1992 movie here, guys. And, and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> so filming took place for five weeks in Los Angeles. Um, and the the entire like shooting schedule was limited to that time. because quick. Be, yes. It was because of one particular actor who was uh, just now hitting his stride, and that man was Luke Perry, well. who was just getting famous for Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> uh, it was very much like Marty McFly situation mm-hmm. with uh, Michael J. Fox, you know, like he was filming a popular TV show <laughs> at the time and could only, you know, film probably at nighttime or on weekends yeah. or something. So very similar situation. But that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how it was made. Let's talk about it. Let's talk. So about tell it. us, what is this movie about? Um, this movie is about a your typical Californian Valley Girl teen named Buffy. Mr. Howard is so heinous. He's always giving me a hard time. I get a C plus on the test, and he tells me you have no sense of history. I have no sense of history. He wears a brown tie. You got a C plus? I can't believe I cheated off of you. Excuse me for not knowing about El Salvador. Like, I'm ever going to Spain anyway. So that was Buffy, a high school cheerleader, mm-hmm. talking to all of her friends. And Buffy, the main character, is the one who says, I'm not going to go to Spain anyway. <laughs> right? So um, this the thing 
I find most interesting about this movie, especially like in the lens that we're looking at things year by year. We mm-hmm. get to kind of like, you know, track history through these weird movies that we watch. Right. This is such a an early 90s time capsule. That Valley Girl trope had just hit mainstream, mm. right? And I I had done some some like research on the Valley Girl stereotype mm. because, you know, it's a, by this point it's just like mainstream stock character stereotype, yeah. right? right? I guess it was popularized by a Frank Zappa song called Valley Girl. Like that's the thing. Like when we say Valley Girl, we mean someone who lives in like the San Fernando Valley right, of right, Southern right. California. Vapid, blonde, t- you know, teenager. This is the stereotype. This that is, is the stereotype, yeah. right? Airheaded is is a popular stereotype. But I guess like this Frank Zappa song called Valley Girl, and then the movie Valley Girl with Nicolas Cage came out in the, in the early eighties, mm. and then it just kind of became this. It's you know, right. perpetual. Like- a uh, perpetualized stereotype to the point where ev- like it seemed like every star of a teen sitcom and comedy in the late 80s early 90s were valley girl stereotypes mm-hmm. yeah 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 saved by the bell beverly hills 90210 yeah um later on you got clueless it's coming up <laughs> valley girls were everywhere they were so i can understand joss whedon being drawn to the Fun concept of what if a valley girl fought vampires? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an excellent concept to me. It's perfect. Yeah. Um. So you've got this vapid, idiotic character who becomes a hero. Right. Th- there's there's an arc. Ar- it writes itself. <laughs> the arc is there. Buffy is not likable in this movie at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> she's not. She really isn't. She's just very much like wrapped up in her own self like but okay like like teenagers can be like privileged teenagers like rich privileged teenagers can be can you describe buffy's character a little bit like at the start of the movie and then like where like the trajectory takes her so she's just very like flippant focused on her uh selfish (laughs) yeah flippant selfish focused on like what she wants to do which is Basically, the only thing we know about her is that she does cheerleading. And she likes shopping. And she likes shopping. Oh, wow. Look at that jacket. Oh, this is so lush. Wouldn't you guys just love me in this? Guys, what's the sitch? I'm bored. What do you think? Please. It's so five minutes ago. Yeah. (laughs) And she's just... They they talk that way the whole movie. Yeah, they do. But yeah, like she's just like really into herself and doesn't really look beyond her at all. There's that setup as well, right? Like, oh, I don't know anything about history, but like she's having dreams where she's a person in history. And... Oh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> we probably didn't get those, nope. but <laughs> which is perfectly fine. Um, and just her arc is supposed to be this very self-centered girl. Going into someone who's a little more outward focused. She's not. She. The arc is that should be that she like cares about all the things outside of herself. She doesn't really. It's it supposed doesn't really to be land. the basic hero's journey, right? Yeah. Like, there's supposed to be a call to the to hero, mm-hmm. called action to the hero, who then steps up and you know uh, uh, emerges from the world, the childhood world that she knew about, mm-hmm. and you know goes on some grand adventure, saves the world, saves somebody. Um, learn something about herself. Going on an adventure. None of that. Not happens. this Buffy, you know. <laughs> but speaking of the the childhood world she leaves behind or meant to, uh, this movie is so L A. Like 
It's very. It's so insider LA, and here's the here's the deal. Like you know, Jess and I, we live in Southern California. We uh, born and raised in Southern California, mm-hmm. so we get a lot of the references. I am a Valley girl. No, you're not. That's another <laughs> thing. Um, it wasn't until like maybe in the last five years I realized that I, I really do have a pretty not thick, but I have a notable notable California accent. Yeah, I say like a lot. Yeah. Um, like we have friends that have even thicker California accents. This is very true. Yeah, dude. And oh. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Yes, I do. <laughs> we love we love those people. We do. But yeah, so it's like <laughs> even that phrase I just said. So it's like. <laughs> But this we, we we grew up in the environment of the Valley Girl. Right. So for me, I can super identify with everything going on. The Los Angeles presented to this movie is like so awesome to me. <laughs> neon lights. Oh, They're gosh. on the Sunset Strip. He kept referencing the neon lights. Honestly, kids, I believe that if I gave him leeway, he would replace all the lighting in our house with neon. Do you remember when, when you go to Target in the 90s and they would have neon lights like line the walls? We need to bring that back. No. <laughs> no. Hey, we're going to put a poll. Neon lights? The answer is no, kids. Fine, that, that's going to be on Twitter. <laughs> N- yes, neon lights. No neon lights. <laughs> anyway, so here's some here's some clips of, of Buffy uh, early in the movie just being Los Angeles. What are we doing? Oh, I don't know. Why don't we go see a movie? Oh, no way. No THX. <laughs> they don't even have Dolby. Sorry. Beverly Center. Oh, please. They show previews for foreign movies. Oh, yeah. AMC? Bogus, Bogus corn. corn. Totally stale, and the ushers are like the Acne Patrol. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay. Okay. How are we I feel like anywhere other than Los Angeles, you can't as a teenager argue about which movie theater you want to go to and know the differences between them. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. It's like, I'm not that picky or pretentious about the movie theaters I go to, but like, I have had the conversation. Do we want to go to the Edwards or do we want to go to the AMC? (laughs) I, when I was, okay, legitimately though, I did grow up in the Valley. So there are just some ones that are just like, do I want, uh, what shoes do I have on? Sandals. That one has sticky floors. They don't ever clean it. We're not going to that one unless I have closed toe shoes. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, but that even saying that, I'm just, okay, that's a very privileged teen thing to say. Yeah. We don't have movie theaters now in the future. This is true. <laughs> and uh, I also have um, a clip. I called this one Valley Girls Environment because this is kind of a jumping off. Back in our 1990. 1990- TV show episode, we talked about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and mm-hmm. what's the sister's name in that show? Hillary. So Hillary from Fresh Prince uh, is a vapid valley girl doing the accent and everything, mm-hmm. right? Her first piece of dialogue, really, is how she's going to go to, like, a save the environment, yeah. like, rally or something, right. or a bus tour, yeah, right? Yeah. And this movie has the same type of characters they're valley girls that are obsessed with the environment but they don't know what it means yeah so i this has to have been rooted in reality there must have there must it, have been it, some it's movement. sort of a takedown of like socialites vapid socialites and like hollywood types mm. you know hollywood actors who are like disingenuously obsessed with the environment mm-hmm. you know like hey there's nothing wrong with caring about the environment yeah right but maybe they made it seem like it was uh more of a a status thing it wasn't about a cause. It was about publicity. Right. So that is that is present in this movie. The environment. I'm telling you, it's totally key. Totally The key. earth is in terrible shape. We could all die. Besides, Sting's doing it. 
is doing Indians? How about the homelessness? Um, How about oh. the homelessness? Aren't there any sicknesses that aren't too depressing? So they they shout out to Sting, you know, like <laughs> celebrities like Sting and mm-hmm. Bono. You know? She's like, yeah, they're all doing it. Oh man, Ugh. It, it's yeah, it, and that's basically like what most of the care like for this portion of the movie, right? Like the first act. Do, the first act is just about this like look at these kids pretending to pr- care about the world but really only caring about their status, right? Kind of thing. These are and our main characters, folks. Yeah, these are our main characters. <laughs> Um, and Buffy, who, who, so who are the, some of the, the people in her life? They have names. <laughs> well, she's got three friends, and we have no idea what they're... I think one name is Jennifer. I have the cast, like, but... I, I looked up some stuff. I Yeah, Jennifer. Polly, I think, died. <laughs> like, the three friends to me were, there's her black friend. Yeah. There's Hillary Swank. Yep. <laughs> and other friend. Curly-haired friend and short-haired friend. Uh, let's, I, I don't even, Hillary Swank plays a character named Kimberly. Is it the same Kimberly from Power Rangers? Yes. You, you be the judge. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know the actresses who play the other two friends. Yeah. Maybe Nicole, Jennifer, there's a Jennifer. But honestly, they're not, like, super important. They're really just kind of that, um, I feel like they're there as placeholders to remind you, like, yeah, but this is how bad Buffy was, and she's a little better now. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Maybe, I'm sure the script did a better job. Of showing yeah. Buffy's character development. Well, we'll get to the script. Yeah. But uh, other than that, our main characters that we actually spend time with are Pike, not Spike. Thanks. What's your name? Buffy. Yeah, figures. I'm Pike. This is Benny. Pike isn't a name. It's a fish. <laughs> <laughs> So Pike is like a, a punk dude uh, from nine hundred two one zero. Yeah, it's 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 Luke Perry. He's kind of he's a he's like a punk. He's a greaser, maybe grunge. Uh, he works in a, he's a mechanic. He works he's at, an alternative. Yeah, basically that's. <laughs> if this was Crybaby, he'd be a drape while the rest of them were yeah. square. An outsider. Yeah. Um, he's just kind of like all of them rolled into one. He doesn't really right. have any more more than anything else. Actually, he's just kind of a. a a deadbeat. Oh yeah, a, a weed head. What is there's a word? A uh, pothead. He, yeah, there you go, pothead. Or uh, um, they are definitely high all the time. I mean, the characters, not the actors. He's a stoner. Stoner. Like him and his him and his friends are abs- Like him yeah. and his friend Benny are absolutely stoners. That's the best yes. way to. They're yeah. just stoners. Also, the Slackers, other character even. is. Now, are you saying words? Or are you quoting uh, Back to the Future? I wasn't, but <laughs> if, it, if it was, it was subconscious. <laughs> Slackers. But anyway, yeah. So Pike, um, <laughs> in the the TV show. Uh, parallels. He's the Xander. Is that that? Guy? Yes. <laughs> He's the Xander. He's of the, the movie. Xander, except he actually has a chance with Buffy. Xander never had a chance with Buffy. Yeah. Um. And at first, they don't like each other, Buffy and Pike. Yeah. Um. But the you know the the plot brings them together. Right. Um. So what is that plot? <laughs> Vampires. The apparent cause of death was a severe neck wound that resembled, in the words of one bystander. A really gross hickey. <laughs> that man read Joss Whedon's lines very well. Yeah, he like, did. Like, that was a good joke. He did. Oh, my gosh. A also, very weird hickey. Talking about people who can read Joss Whedon's lines well, Benny. <laughs> Benny is the only character. There's one other, but I will, I will say, Benny. Benny is played by uh, WCW world champion... Um, David Arquette. David Arquette. <laughs> that, that really happened <laughs> in the year 2000. And did you get any lines? I, I have Benny, but I want to celebrate Benny a little later. Okay, okay, okay. But yes. Uh, we'll get to Benny, but he is friend of Pike, uh, and he has a smaller role, but 
the biggest one in our hearts. Yes, he he acts the most. <laughs> yes. Um, he doesn't act the best, but he acts the most. <laughs> and sometimes that's where it counts. For real. Um, he knew what kind of movie this was. <laughs> he did! As So basically the movie sets up that um, this small... Los Angeles. What a small town. What am I saying? This small town Sorry. called La City of Angels. Yes. La City of Angels. <laughs> so Los Angeles is being uh, overrun with vampirism. <gasps> um, a, a vampire lord lives somewhere? Is it underground? Somewhere no, not there. out there. He, he does not live in 18th century. <laughs> he does not live in 19th century New York. <laughs> he, he's a cat. Um, does he live in a castle? Like, where is he? I think he's just like, I think, like, thinking about it, he's at a church. He's at a church. He must be at a church somewhere. Or yeah. something. So, like, yeah, there's a vampire lord hanging out. Or some- maybe a graveyard. Just like in a mausoleum? I don't know. We don't know. We see his place, but we don't actually yeah. see his place. So he sends his his flunkies out to uh, prey on the innocent, you mm-hmm. know, uh, suck their blood, turn turn other men against, you know, to, to turn men into his to his kind mm-hmm. in traditional vampire ways. Yeah. You know, I have a clip of them, actually. Sleep, my master, my own. Sleep. I have already begun building you a new family. Soon we will be legion. When you rise, we will claim this place as our own. Rubies will drip from your lips. Soon. So that uh, that whole scene right there, that was played by Paul Rubens. Do you know who Paul Rubens is? Never heard of him, never will hear about he him. He plays Pee-wee. <laughs> I will bring up Pee-wee in every episode. I, I was talking to a friend before we recorded yesterday. And I mentioned that we were going to be talking about this movie, and that friend told me that the only reason he watched this movie was because he loved Pee Wee, and Paul Rubens was in this movie. Boo! Who's that friend? I'm unfriending them. Nope. Can't tell you. It's a secret. I'm texting Matt. Okay, so anyway, that was the, <laughs> that was the vampire flunky, you know, talking about his undying love for his master, the vampire lord, mm-hmm. whose name I forget. We don't care. <laughs> Lothos, which is a very vampire name. Lothier. So anyway, Ooh. with the vampire threat, because this is the first movie we're talking about with vampires, uh, Jess wanted to talk a little bit about vampire lore. Yeah. And how it relates to this movie. This movie both reinforces <laughs> traditional vampire tropes, but also subverts some. So Yeah. So like I, I like looked up just uh, very quickly, sparsely, oh, whatever. Uh-huh. I like there's stuff that we know about vampires, yeah. right? Like they're I, I wrote a I wrote an honors thesis in in, in oh, college Dracula. on Dracula. So yes, oh. I am I am well versed in the vampire. Okay, well maybe you'll be able to add some stuff. Well, more stuff probably. But okay so Bram Stroker's my boy. <laughs> Dear. <laughs> so as we know vampires are um Things that feed, that like survive off of drinking vital essence, usually blood, generally blood. Uh, but there's like a lot of different for folklores, a lot of different, like almost every culture has a version of this, right? And yep. the one that we most are most know is like European, right? Undead cre- creatures that come um, and destroy you. Do you know, you know, my favorite international vampire is what the Chinese vampires that they hop around like toads. Oh. <laughs> This is there. There are movies. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are Chinese uh, horror <laughs> films about vampires, and the vampires hop around. <laughs> that is terrifying, though. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't know. I would run even if you weren't a vampire. You were just hopping like a toad in the street towards me, like ah. Yeah. Yep. That's that's the way to get rid of a mugger. Yep. <laughs> I'm not saying I was a mugger. 
Anyway, okay, so um, I, there's some stuff though that I thought was like pretty interesting, right? Like, so we know mostly like what European folklore are, but originally, like today, we the we see them are they are depicted as like tall, elegant creatures, like pasty and blah blah blah. Yeah. But originally, like it was literally people like the undead coming alive. So it was um their countenance i guess they were legitimately like bloated and like their skin ruddy like it was like a walking corpse Mm. not like like more like what we would think a zombie would be except less rotty and so things like that that i think or like um in africa i i only like wrote down a couple of them because i was like that's really interesting in africa the um, the beings that are well they have lots of different ones because there's lots of tribes but like in west africa there's a tribe called the Ashanti people, um, and their vampires are like iron tooth and teeth drill- dwelling. And uh, the Iwu, Iwu people, Iwu, Iwu people, Iwu, I can't say it. Their their vampires can take the form of fireflies to hunt children down. How terrifying is that? It's pretty terrifying. That's I'm just okay. I just like thought it was pretty interesting. The uh, the Dracula that we all know, Bram Stoker. Yeah. So Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? Uh, Dracula the man um, can be read as a uh, racist characterization of immigrants. I believe that. Yep. So he's like a very hairy man. He's oafish, uh, intimidating. Mm. Um, so he's not. He's not the suave. Yeah. You know, seductor. That's you know, that's that, a, a re- that's a more recent. Like, I think like that's 19th a whole century. I, yeah. I think that's a Hollywood thing. It's yeah. got to be. Yeah. You know, because, like, even, even, um... Nosferatu wasn't that. Oh, yeah. Nosferatu is disgusting, you know, like, this disgusting creature. But, uh, like, even Bela Lugosi in the Dracula movie, like, Mm -hmm. the first one, he's not even, he's not a very good-looking man. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like, he didn't have that sex appeal that vampires have today. Yeah, no, it's literally a 19th century, um, addition. But that's not to say that vampirism was not always sexy. Mm -hmm. Like, as, like, Bram Stoker on vampirism always literarily relates to like uh repressed sexual desire mm, right okay. it is this creature that wants to penetrate you and psych- suck its your vitals from you Ugh. you know basically invade you know like yeah, i get it <laughs> turn you seduct uh, seduce you Blech. that is ingrained in vampire lore, lore and stuff, now yeah. right and this movie does not shy away from that. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I feel like just in that last clip we played with with the vampire lord and his flunky, you know, it's like a very sexual relationship, you know, very uh, yeah, submit, you know, um, master Dominate and submissive? yeah, dominator submissive relationship. Yeah, okay, but I would just like looking through. I'm gonna go through like some common attributes of them, but before that, I just thought it was really interesting, like some of the different like causes for vampires and. In folklore, like in Slavic and in Chinese traditions, any corpse that is jumped over by an animal, particularly a dog or a cat, was feared to become the undead. There you go. So, like, you just got to keep animals away from your dead bodies, and then they won't, you know, you'll be good. Or uh, any wound that hadn't been treated with, like, boiling water was at risk to turning you into a vampire. (laughs) I was just like, or, and some people just like, oh, vampires are just witches that refuse to... (laughs) Like, heed the status quo while they were alive, and now that we've killed them, they've come back to continue to wreak havoc. There's actually one that says uh, the reasons that uh, vampires exist is because uh, they drank the blood of Jesus and were granted eternal life. There you go. That's another thing that Bram Stoker brought in. Um, and I think this has to do with, like, uh, you know, the, the, the occult 
fascination in you know like the old world versus the new world uh in terms of christianity in in europe Mm -hmm. right like you know christian dominance of europe and you know that that whole uh phenomena whatever you know colonization Colonization. (laughs) (laughs) um that's present in in dracula uh basically uh the 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 wise scientist van helsing um, establishes that science cannot explain the vampire right only faith in jesus christ can one overcome the threat of Dracula, right? Okay. This is not a science issue. It's one of faith. Ah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, if I'm if I'm being face down with the omelet, it's going to be a faith question for me. If not a, not really a lot of me, not but... a lot of Christian symbolism in in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's a little oh, bit this. like yeah, the no, cross. No. I think does Buffy bears the cross at one point, right? Like No, that's in the show. She she wheeled Okay, so <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar wields a cross to fight vampires. Uh, Buffy of the movie does not. Does not. It spikes and nothing else. Miss Swanson, no, no crosses. No. But actually, that being said, like the um, the ways that potential vampires were killed most often were staked through the heart or the mouth, but uh, and sometimes the stomach. But basically, it's the idea of piercing the skin to deflate the bloated vampire is why is how you would kill it basically. Yep. And, and um, Buffy takes that. Buffy yep. kills vampires with a stake. Yep. Several vampires with stakes. Several. She kills a vampire with a guitar neck. She does. A broken guitar is is laying at her feet. She picks it up and stabs a vampire in the heart with <laughs> the neck of the guitar. <laughs> which is such a 90s thing. Yeah. It's clever. It's, you know. In a better movie, that would have been excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so I went online and there was a uh, site called thevampirewife.com. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I did not peruse this site very long. I wanted to, but I was short on time. Tell us what dark secrets lie on <laughs> vampiremom.com. What is it? <laughs> the vampirewife.com. Oh. Uh, but I only got one thing, which was the 12 com- commonly attributed abilities of the undead. All right. Um, flight. I'm gonna, oh, so wait, okay. I want you to, you're going to read through all these, mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you whether or not they're present in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Uh, so flight. The Bruska, Lagjar, and the Aswang can fly. Other vampires change shape to fly. Vampires do fly in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Misting gives the vampire access to places that are hard to secure or reach. That one I don't think so. Mm-mm. No, no, not in Buffy. Strength equal to that of many men increases with age. Yes, B- Buffy does struggle with fighting vampires with. Strongness. <laughs> that was a weird sentence. Yes, it was. Question, are you just going by the movie or are you going by both? The, the movie. Okay. Yeah. Hypnosis. Useful for luring and ensnaring victims. I feel like, does this, I don't know if this happens in the movie. Does it? Yeah. Who, who, gets, who gets hypnotized? She does for a minute. Oh, the, at the very end. At it, the very end. It's like a... But also a little bit before Merrick, Merrick just get, like distracts him from doing the thing from yeah. hypnotizing her should we introduce merrick no okay who cares but yeah he, so at the who's... near the end of the movie the vampire lord has like a emperor palpatine moment with with uh buffy, buffy. and yeah that does happen change in size or dimensions good for tight spots not in this one control the elements power extends over wind rain and other natural forces i don't think so maybe like mist like, you know, like, 
It gets misty. It does get foggy. Suddenly. It gets it gets very foggy on the night of the dance. <laughs> the the whole the whole uh, climax of Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie mm. takes place at a school dance. Yeah. What's up with that? Every high school movie has to have a school dance. This this movie does not disappoint. No. <laughs> and it's a misty night when the it's... vampires show up. <laughs> Control of animals. Power extends over many creatures, including insects, rats, fleas, and bats. Nope, not in Buffy. Eternal life. Varies in length. Not all vampires are immortal. Yes. Uh, the, the vampire lord, Lothos, has lived l- a long time. Yes, he has. Scale walls. Vampires are nimble as spiders. Yes? One of the vampires, like, there's a car chase, and he, like, is, like, holding on to the uh, the, the, the oh, car, yeah. you know? Like, he's on the car, and, like, is scrambling up and down the car. Yeah, sort of, I guess. Yeah. Transformation. Vampires can turn into bats, cats, dogs, wolves, and butterflies. Also insects, rats, birds, fleas, mice, and locusts. This one I don't think happens in Buffy. Does it happen in the show? Like, do they, vampire like, turn into bats or anything? I never watched the show like that. I cannot tell you. Let us but know I on Twitter. I don't think so. <laughs> I believe that they could be very fast running. Okay. Drain of life force, an attribute of the psychic vampire. Yes. Sort of. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so that's some vampire lore for you. There you go. I think that it's the additions that um uh Josh 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 makes is um the fact that there are much like Van Helsing with his faith, all the things, this universe has a the Slayer. Right. A the Slayer. So there's, in in, in the Buffyverse, mm-hmm. as they call it, there's, like, generations. You know, it's almost like, uh, it's like Sabrina the Teenage Witch. There was always, like, a, a, a witch hunter. Like, a, you know, mm-hmm. witch hunters reca- reincarnated throughout time. Yeah. In this, in this universe, Slayers and Watchers? Watchers, yeah. So you have like the Slayer and the Watcher roles are constantly reincarnated throughout time. Yeah. And their one role is to fight the vampires. Yes. So in this movie... uh, Our Watcher is... Merrick. A a strange man shows up to become Buffy's mentor. And he is... Strange and weird and pedophile-y. Yeah. You're one of those skanky old men that like (laughs) girls and stuff, right? Well, forget you. My name is Merrick, and you have been chosen, Buffy. <sighs> chosen to go to the graveyard? Why don't you just take the first runner up, okay? Everything depends on you, Buffy. Now, you must come with me now to the graveyard while there's still time. Time to do what? Time to stop the killing, to stop the vampires. <sighs> he reads those lines. Yeah, so we'll we're to we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about this man's performance a little later, Ooh, but uh, it's not gonna be a good talk, kids. Like we said, that is Merrick. He has come to uh, help train Buffy so that she can stop the killing, stop the vampires, <laughs> save the cheerleader. <laughs> wrong, wrong show. I never watched that show either. Don't either. make me watch that show. Okay. No, I, I've, I've only seen the first episode and I hated it. Um, so how I felt about Lost. This movie. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, especially the show, has a very deep lore. Yeah. And it's pretty well thought out, it yeah. seems like. Um, Joss Whedon like, establishes the rules of his universe. He keeps to them. There's characters fall into certain roles. Uh, they, you know, There's the this, this Slayer business and all mm-hmm. that stuff, right? This movie does a terrible job explaining it. Yeah. And I don't know who to blame. <laughs> <laughs> there are many options, and I'm not sure who I should lay it on. So, like, I was like, that's the thing. It's like everyone meddled in this movie, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, the the I think like part of me wants to think this was the uh, 
the director, Miss Kazooie, mm-hmm. because like they felt that the, the the original script was too dark, right? They wanted something a little lighter, a little comedy, and I bet you like deep dives into like vampire lore mm-hmm. weren't light enough, so they cut it. Mm-hmm. That's my assumption. I don't know for sure. That's just my guess. So they just cut all of the like. Hey, here's what a slayer is. Here's what a watcher is. Yeah. Let's explain this. Instead, you're just like, what is happening? Yeah. You're and, just like, okay. And, you know, we get these, like, I feel like this wasn't written the way Joss intended it, but this is Merrick trying to explain to Buffy that she is the chosen one, you know? Like, <laughs> you threw a knife at my head. Yes, I had to show you. But you threw a knife at my head. And you caught it. Only the chosen one could have caught it. Don't you get it? I don't want to be the chosen one. I don't want to spend the rest of my life chasing after vampires. All I want to do is graduate from high school, go to Europe, marry Christian Slater, and die. Okay. A few things. Like, Buffy's like Buffy's character there, I think, is like, you know, selling her role as a, you know, a vapid teenager the best she can, right? Right. She's a dumb teenager. She wants to marry Christian Slater and die. Um, <laughs> but, like, we get no information from from Merrick here. Yeah. Like, what is the chosen one? Why is this important? What's the goal? She, I don't... Does he even mention that there's a threat of a vampire lord in town? Ever? Does he ever mention it? No. I don't think he ever tells her, hey, there's a vampire lord and he's building an army. A legion. Legion. No. Just, they just show up. They do. And she's and left he's like, she's not ready. As, as if this is... It's awful. So... Jess went through the trouble of capturing some clips from the first episode of Buffy the Vampire of the Show, just to show the difference between what is ineffective in establishing the, the lore, yeah. the, the roles of these characters, versus an effective one. So here is a very similar clip from the first episode of Buffy. You really have no idea what's going on, do you? Do you think it's coincidence you're being here? That boy was just the beginning. Oh, why can't you people just leave me alone? Because you are the Slayer. Into each generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one, one born with a strength and skill to hunt the vampires, to stop the spread of their evil, blah, blah, blah. I've heard it, okay? In 10 seconds, he explained to me that there are generations of slayers born every time to stop the vampires. Mm -hmm. There's a cycle. Yep. She's the latest in the cycle, Mm -hmm. and he's there to help her. Easy. (laughs) That's all you had to do. That's really all you had to do. And the movie failed. Uh, it's just like, no, oh, we'll throw a knife at her. It's fine. Yep. Like, this is not helpful. So what other, what other aspects of the, the, the Slayer and the Watcher do you want to talk about? I think the, in regards to, like, the lore that, uh, Joss adds to, well then, right, like, we, a whole other scene, um, the way that the, which is interesting because, oh, we didn't get this from the, the show, but, like, the way that the, um, Slayer can sense these unnatural beings is that she starts having cramps. <laughs> this, yes. This seems like a Joss Whedon idea because he's like, you know, kind of he's, he's playing on teenager tropes, right. right? Like it's, it's always like a vampire idea sprinkled with teenage tropes. Right. Right. So this one is, she gets cramps when vampires are near. You must never forget the cardinal rule, Buffy. One vampire is a lot easier to kill than 10. Does the word duh mean anything to you? You felt sick, didn't you? You had cramps? Nice conversationalist. Yeah, I felt them a little. 
But I'm not due for another couple of weeks since you're so hot on the subject. Of course you're not. It was a natural reaction on the part of a slayer. A reaction to their unnaturalness. And you're going to be able to use that to track them. Great. My secret weapon is PMS. So she gets she gets PMS when <laughs> the vampires are near. Which is how you know a man wrote this, because that's not what <laughs> PMS. Nope, nope, that's not that's not what it is. <laughs> but even then, Mr. Merrick in this movie says that with such little conviction. Yeah. I feel like the actor saying those lines does not understand or care about anything he's saying. Yeah. And it's just like uh, I we I actually this is the scene that I like I pulled the script for. I looked at the script because I was just like because we we had just been talking about how like the actor for Merrick just was not here for it. Nope. He just he refused to read the light. Like there's some places where we were watching it it was like I can hear I can hear the line I hear the words and I hear how it should have been read right so Joss Whedon um I'm sure many of our listeners you have seen at least one Joss Whedon project Mm -hmm. the original Buffy Firefly um the Avengers if you've (laughs) seen the Avengers movie you know what kind of dialogue Joss Whedon likes to write yeah snappy witty a lot of like one-liners and play words like think Tony Stark yeah think Mel. Mal. <laughs> I think it, it's just like Quentin Tarantino, right? Quentin Tarantino has a particular way of writing dialogue, and certain actors can, are perfect for it, right. right? Robert Downey Jr. is perfect for Joss Whedon. Samuel L. Jackson is perfect for Quentin Tarantino, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes someone tries to read those lines, and it just doesn't come off right. Right. On the page, it could have been perfect, right? Yeah. And exactly, and with the right actor, it comes out excellently. With this man, no, Mr. Sutherland, playing Merrick, does not work. Like, no. at the beginning of that scene, or that clip I just played, he says, like, you must remember the cardinal rule. One vampire is easier to kill than ten. Than ten. You know, like, with the right actor, that could have been a pretty witty line. Yeah. And fun to listen to. But that man says it with, like, just, he, he's, flat. like, it's flat, it's droning, he doesn't care. Yeah, we were talking about how he was, like, like it felt very much, like, British... Uh, what is that like? Shakespearean. Shakespearean. Like I'm a Shakespeareanly trained. Wow, I'm a Shakespearean trained actor. He's above this stuff. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that we you were we were looking into it a little bit, and he like there's just some lines he refused to read, right? Like that he didn't. This scene, we're gonna read it to you right now. I don't even give a care. We're doing it. We're yeah, doing I'm it. I'm down with it. But like, there's a whole. We didn't play the whole of the scene, but there's literally like. Eight lines of dialogue that are cut from the movie that would have made you actually care about this character a minuscule amount. Right. Um, so before we read that, uh, I have uh, I have some facts about apparently. So Joss Whedon like had a bunch of issues. Like obviously, right? mm. he had a bunch of issues making this movie and having his script torn to pieces. Right. Not just with by the director or the studio. Uh, they removed jokes apparently. Oh. Like that's another thing. They just re- straight up removed jokes from his script. Um, but. Whedon was particularly critical of actor Donald Sutherland and his behavior on set, describing him as entitled and difficult to work with. Apparently, Sutherland often improvised or altered his lines in the script, and that's 100% evident watching the movie and knowing Joss Whedon's pedigree, which director Kazooie allowed him to do freely because he was the film's most high-profile star at the time. Uh, uh, Whedon felt this made Merrick's dialogue in the film disjointed and unintelligible. It really did, though. Yep. And, and it made him come off real pervy. So Whedon tried to stick it, like, stick 
to the production as an advisory role, but he walked off set after becoming dissatisfied with the direction the film was taking. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to read this this scene here. I will play the role of Merrick. I will play the role of Buffy. I have not I have not read this before. She just sent it to me, so uh, we'll excuse see if we can me. Do better. <laughs> well, we'll still probably be able to do better than Donald Sutherland. Yeah, and I'll read uh, the narrator stuff too. I guess. Okay. Interior, the warehouse, same time. They unload their stuff as they argue. Nice conversationalists. Yeah, I felt them a little, but. But I ain't due for another two weeks since you're so excited about the subject. It's natural. A reaction to their presence, to the unnaturalness of it. It's part of how you know you're able to track them. Oh, wonderful. My secret weapon is PMS. That's just great. Thanks for telling me. You'll get used to it. I'm more worried about your tactical mistakes. You're such a wet. A what? A wet. Didn't I just kill that vampire? I think I did. I didn't see you killing any vampires. You were just... You're too busy playing beat the clock. Don't start with me again. Aren't I like the chosen one? The one and only? The Grand High Poobah? And doesn't that mean you like have to be nice to me? Ever? Buffy. And why are you always wearing black? It's so down. It's totally not your color. I don't think you have a color. What do you want, Buffy? Encouragement? Gosh, Buffy, you're so special. Just want to give you a big old hug. Oh, I'm just having a warm, fuzzy... Oh, F you. Merrick turns on her. Do you know how many girls I've trained to be slayers? Five. Five properly prepared girls. Girls who faced their responsibilities, who worked hard to become women overnight. Harder than you've ever worked in your entire life. And I saw them ripped apart. Do you want to live? Do you? By the way, I just want to interject. That sells Buffy's character development more than the movie does as well. Yeah... Uh, I... What did you think? That being able to jump about and hit people makes you a slayer? (sighs) Buffy looks at him a bit. Five? Five. So basically I've got, like, the life expectancy of a zit, right? Not if you're careful. How can you keep doing this? It's what I was raised to do. There aren't many of us left. The Watchers. Watchers? There's a small village in Hampshire near Stonehenge. Sees that she doesn't know it. Near a bunch of big rocks. Oh. <laughs> That's where I was born. My father taught me that, uh, about the training, about finding the slayers, reading the signs. There's a small cluster of us, a few families, really. Most of the neighboring villages think we were just a bunch of harmless old loonies. I thought so, my, I thought so myself for a time when I was younger. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not used. I'm not supposed to. I, I shouldn't go on like this. I wish you would. It isn't important. I'm curious is all. Buffy, don't, don't start thinking of me as your friend. It interferes with the work, and it... Makes it worse when I die, right? Silence. Well, you know, I'm not gonna kick it so easy. I've got a few things the other girls didn't have. As for example, what? Well, there's my keen fashion sense, for one. Vampires of the world, beware. Merrick, you made a joke. Are you okay? I mean, do you want to lie down? I know it hurts the first time. I, I feel like... That, I, that line was in the movie. That was in the movie. And I feel like I butchered it just like Don or Donald Sutherland butchered it. Because I feel like a prepared actor who really sunk his teeth into this role, uh, pun unintended, <laughs> would have saw that this scene moved from Merrick being like authoritative and you know kind of like trying to keep 
Buffy at an arm's distance, but as the course of the scene, he gets more vulnerable. Yeah. Reveals something about himself to her, tries mm-hmm. to reel back, but then she he is disarmed by her and tells a joke. Yeah. I didn't do it justice. It's on the page. Donald Sutherland, who is a Shakespearean trained actor, also did not do that. Also, that whole part was cut. Like most of it, yeah. Most of it, like all you get for from in the movie is um the thing about PMS, him maybe yelling at her about like the number of people, like five, I trained five, and then it skips to like, oh yeah, um I've got a keen fashion sense. Like it cuts out that whole backstory. Yep. So I have that clip of Merrick telling the joke, and it is flat and dumb, and I think it it tells a lot of the issues with this movie, and particularly Donald Sutherland's performance. Merrick, I'm not going to croak that easily. I have something that the other girls didn't have. And what might that be, pray? My keen fashion sense. Oh, vampires of the world, beware. (laughs) Merrick, you made a joke. That's good. Are you all right? Do you want to lie down? I know it hurts for the first time, but it was a good joke. That sentimental music that makes no sense. It was a good joke. (laughs) It it wasn't a good joke. I have like a few notes on this relationship because it's like, Mm -hmm. for the most part, like kind of the core of the movie, like past the first act. It's meant to be. He's the only person for who really understands the world that she's been drawn into. And really like other than Pike, the only character that Buffy really spends extended amount of time with. Yeah. Even her friends. It's like a superficial. Yeah. And these two actors, I think have such poor chemistry. There's literally whole scenes that we don't believe they're in the same room together. (laughs) That is the case. Yes. Like, we were watching, it was like, they have not shared a shot for this entire three-minute scene, and it's just them talking in a room. And Christy Swanson, um, she's trying. She is. I recognize her as trying to be this role. I I, I think she just wasn't an experienced actress at the time. Um, So I can't fault her too much, but... She has such poor chemistry this, with this weird old man. Yeah. Um, I have, Which I mean, positive? <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a scene that takes place in the women's locker room at a high school. Ew. Uh, it's Buffy and Merrick talking. <gasps> God, what are you doing here? This is a naked place. You were supposed to meet me an hour ago. I told you that I practiced. I told you to skip it. Listen, I think there's been a big mistake, all right? I mean, I appreciate that there are real vampires and that you're on this big holy mission, but obviously somebody read their tea leaves wrong because I'm not your girl. And I don't think I'm up to it. And just between you and me, neither do you. So just then he throws a knife at her head. He he does throw a knife at her head. (laughs) Just in that, like, exchange right there, right, you can see the thing. She's trying, Mm -hmm. and he is doing such a poor job at reading his lines. I feel like with Joss Whedon lines, right, all of his characters have a disarming quality to the way they speak right like when you hear tony stark speak like you're like engaged with him right right um or you hear uh, malcolm reynolds speak you're like oh yes i I," you feel disarmed you're right it's a very conversational disarming feeling right donald sutherland sounds like a creep (laughs) and i get tense and uncomfortable whenever he speaks in this movie because it's like not only is this a weird situation where he's in the women's locker room and just like he's a grown old man but at the same time, like, he's not doing anything to, like, make me endeared to the character Merrick. Right. Um, here's another clip. Comes right after that. It is true. You have missed years of training. 
See? And you are undisciplined. Frivolous. Don't I know it. Quite probably the most vacuous choice in my entire... Okay, okay, I think we both get the point. That was that, right? Like, the, the, those lines are Joss Whedon lines. Yeah. I can, I can see them coming out of a Joss Whedon character, and he just sucks. Yeah. So bad. Um, and again, like, just in those, hearing those two characters talk back and forth, like, they seem like they're in a different room, or they're just not on the same page, right? Neither, I don't think they agree on what type of movie they're in, right? Yeah. I think that that's the, the main thing. Like, Merrick, the guy, Dal- Sutherland, did not want to be in this teen horror comedy like he was so far above that like i'm trying to i'm like looking at the looking at the um script right now trying to see trying to see like where where that part is where like ah this is a naked room like he's he's literally in the girls locker room cheer practice just stopped women just left that room it's Joss, honestly, it's a really weird place to put him regardless. But I can imagine a different character, like, a different actor, like, hiding behind the thing. Just like, I know, I'm, but you were supposed to meet me. Or play it off like he's he's socially awkward. Like, yeah. he, he he doesn't understand the uh, the social faux pas of going into the women's locker room, you know? Because he's yeah. just this weird old man that's been living and training slayers for so long. He doesn't yeah. understand the etiquette, you know? And with a different person, you totally can get that. With this one, it's just like, I don't know, he, just, he sounds like a slimy creep. Yeah, I, he, I think he, I feel like he was trying to go for like mysterious, and suave. suave teacher, master of all the knowledge. And that's not what these lines are. That's not right. what this character should be. We talked about the Mario, the Super Mario Brothers movie when we were watching it. <laughs> and uh, Super Mario Brothers movie was made and uh, Sir, uh, Sir Bob Hoskins... Yeah. Played Mario and, and John Leguizamo played Luigi, and they thought the movie they were in was so bad that they just showed up to set drunk every day, every day, and just gave it the bare minimum. Oh, I love that movie. I though. would not be surprised if Donald Sutherland showed up to set drunk and gave in zero effort, did uh, the bare minimum for real. Yeah. So anyway, to juxtapose those two performances, uh, Jess picked a very similar clip of Buffy. From the TV show, talking to her mentor, her watcher, right. whose name is Giles. Uh, again, a British man of authority, but you can just hear the difference. It's leagues difference. Leagues better. What do you know about this town? It's two hours in the freeway from Neiman Marcus. Dig a bit in the history of this place, and you'll find a, a steady stream of fairly odd occurrences. I believe this whole area is a center of mystical energy. The things gravitate towards it that, that, that you might not find elsewhere. Like vampires. Like zombies. Werewolves. Incubi. Succubi. Everything you've ever dreaded was under your bed, but told yourself couldn't be by the light of day. They're all real. What? You like sent away for the Time Life series? Uh, yes. Did you get the free phone? Um, the calendar. <laughs> so that man, he's a little bit more bumbling. Yes. Uh, but he still has an air of authority. He he knows what he's talking about. And he bends with her. Right. Like that 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 thing where you're saying like a little socially awkward. Like she's being sarcastic when she's like, you send away for the lifetime. Oh, I did. Thanks for asking. He didn't right. say thanks for asking. But like the like he moves. His character is like fitted. So a few things I think help those two uh, actors, their performances. One, they have great chemistry. Like, yes. Sarah Michelle Geller is super confident. Like, she is in the role, right? I, I feel like uh, Miss Swanson was not. Right. Like, she was trying, but she wasn't as confident as Sarah she Michelle Geller. Like, 
Sarah Michelle Gellar is just like nailing it, nailing it. She knows exactly what she needs to do, and she's like toe to toe with this old man. And the old man is like he he stutters and like is caught off guard. And like I said, it disarms the audience. Yeah. You're more endeared to him. Yeah, and you're more willing to, like, listen to what he has to say. Like, he comes out and he's like, not just vampires, zombies, succubus, incubi. Like, you're like, oh, okay, this is this is pretty big. And he's yeah. giving you a lot of information. And you're willing to be like, all right, one thing at a time, bro. Yeah. So those are all elements of a good performance. And the movie is bereft of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's super unfortunate. So we really needed to... Really dig in and criticize Donald Sutherland for this movie. Yeah. Um, like, but I don't want to stop there. In fact, I want to celebrate yeah. some of the characters and the actors who know what movie they're in <laughs> and s- nail it. They just ham it up. They ham it. Th- that's what this movie needed, right? Not just with jo- Joss Whedon's dialogue, uh, you know, with the um, direction that Miss Kazooie was going for, right? Mm-hmm. This campy horror comedy, right, right. right? Teen comedy, what they were going for. It needs hammy performances. <laughs> you need cartoon characters. And there are a few actors in this movie that do an excellent job. Yes. So just to like not scare off our listeners from watching the movie. Because like this movie's still fun to watch. It's a fun movie night movie, you know, yes. to have a few drinks with some friends. Yeah. And, I mean, I would suggest enjoy. to watch it with friends and not alone. Yes. Not because it's scary, but because you may not get through yeah. it. I did because I like it. <laughs> so yeah, we may have complained a lot about Donald Sutherland being a jerk. But there's redeeming characters in this movie because they are having so much freaking fun. Yeah. Which one do you want to talk about first? Benny. All right, we're going to talk about Benny. Um, Side note, I love Benny's in vampire things. Don't ask me why. So Mr. Arquette himself, Benny, um, gets turned into a vampire early in the movie, and he's best friends with um, Luke Perry, Pike. Benny shows up to Pike's window, bedroom window, to ask him to be let in. Yeah. By this point, he is a vampire. Oh yeah, forgot. Normal vampire lore, they can the most polite of the supernatural community. Yeah. They can't be let in without an invitation. They can't just walk into your house. Werewolves can. And David Arquette, as a vampire, is just hamming it up. Yeah. And like Luke Perry's doing a pretty good job too. I- I'm not gonna like say that Luke Perry's not doing a good job. He's reading these lines pretty well. Yeah. Where you been, man? I tried to call your house like 50 times. Dang it. Yeah, yeah, you left me hanging. I almost pulled a Hendrix. Come on, let me in. This weird guy gave me a ride home. I thought he was going to hit on me. Come on, fight me at Pike. Wait a minute, man. What's wrong with you? I'm fine. You look like shit, man. Well, I feel pretty. I feel pretty. <laughs> and he's like swaying around like a ballerina because he's he's floating outside of Pike's window. Right. He's, he's flying because he's a vampire. And <laughs> freaking... David Arquette's on a harness, like, with a wire, and he's just like... Ah. <laughs> like he's literally the most comfortable I I have ever seen an actor on a harness. Like, right. when they're, like, legit, like, you can tell that they're, like, they're strapped in and their legs are dangling, but he's just like, yeah, this is fine. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me in, Pike. I'm hungry. Go home, man. I'm hungry. You're floating! Come on, man! Get away from here! I'm hungry! I'm hungry! I'm hungry! <laughs> we got like the... Come on, man! I'm hungry! We got every emotion known to man in that performance. <laughs> we got like, come on, I'm hungry. Like he's getting upset and then he's told no again. 
hungry. He's pouting, and he gets more and more angry again, and then he, like, starts laughing. It's perfect. It's perfect. Like, David Arquette, you are a national treasure. <laughs> more people need to know the, the wonders of, of David Arquette. Oh, gosh. Go watch the documentary, You Can't Kill David Arquette. Uh, he almost dies in a, a, a wrestling death match. <laughs> but he doesn't die because you can't kill him. <laughs> That's the why it's called that. You so can't. I, I have one more clip of Benny, and this is at the end of the movie where he has got Pike pinned, right? This is the point where, like, two former best friends, one's a vampire and one's a vampire hunter, clash. Right. And Benny is trying to convince Pike to become a vampire because, like, who cares about these people? You want to be an immortal vampire? Look how free we are. Isn't it great, Pike? Isn't it great? Finally got those bitches on the run. <laughs> no, honestly, I leave you alone for five minutes and look you hanging out with. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be that way. I could still change. Give me a break, Danny. Why do you like these people? They're sheep. Oh, forget them. We could start a band. <laughs> I don't know. He's making a pretty compelling case to me. I mean... <laughs> You're not wrong. I will say, like, this is better than how it happens in the show. The, like, best friend meeting the newly minted vampire hunter. Yeah. But um, it's, it's more... because Benny is, like, or yeah. because David Arquette is really giving it. I feel, I feel like it's role. because David Arquette is in tune with the tone of the movie. Yeah. Right? The tone of the movie is silly and campy and dumb. Yeah. Right? Donald Sutherland wasn't doing that. He was yeah. trying to be solemn and serious. David Arquette, campy and stupid and dumb. <laughs> Whereas in the show... For the most part, they play it straight with a lot of sarcastic jokes. Right. But it's not campy and stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in that one, like, the characters, when they're turned into vampires, they still take themselves seriously. And it works in the tone of the show. Yeah. When the movie is dumb... You just gotta, you gotta lean. You gotta, you gotta go lean full stupid. Left. Lean left. Lean back. The, the other person I want to highlight who goes full <sighs> stupid is Paul Rubens. The man knows what kind of movie this is, and he just rolls with it. He's like, yep, I'm I'm a um, flamboyant, effeminate, campy vampire, and I'm just going to roll with it. Is he flamboyant? He's is like, he effeminate? I don't know I don't that know, if we use those words. He's got a goatee and, like, punk hair. Oh, is that what makes you? <laughs> I don't know. He's, he's very, like, I don't know. He's just very free. I don't, you know He's what I mean. very, like, 16th century artesian. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a good way to put it. And uh, his his mentor, played by Rutger Hauer, also <laughs> letting it happen. Just be they know ha- where they're hamming at. it up. They these two men together like play that like vampire, uh, like you know, basically they're like vampire lovers. Yeah, <laughs> they're just so good together. <laughs> you fool! You left the others behind because of a little thing like this on their first kill. He took my arm. Reckless imbecile. The city of angels is ours for the taking. With you. Twelve hundred years old. You behave like a child. I had him in my grasp. Cheer up. You may still. Do something about that arm. It looks horrible. Honestly, I don't know how you made it through the Crusades. <laughs> they are very like um, the odd couple that have been together for a while. It's like comfor- comfortable, uh, like... And they were roommates. 
I don't know, like, they're just, like, long-term long term relationship, like, just ultra-comfortable with each other. Yeah. Like, he's got, like, almost like that, like, the, the mentor is, like, you know, protective of this guy. He's like, oh, you look terrible. Like, <laughs> look what they've done to you. Like, what have they done to you? Get that arm fixed. You still oh. act like a child. So it's just, like, it's it's unnerving and weird, but they, they lean into it so hard that you're just like, I love this. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I have one clip, it's very short, of... Paul Rubens reading what is very clearly a Joss Whedon line to a T. You ruined my new jacket. Kill him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were watching it. I was like, yep, yep, that's Joss Whedon right there. Kill, Kill him, him a lot. lot. <laughs> Good. Uh, no, I will not congratulate Paul Rubens for anything. Anyway, I think that's all there is to say about Buffy other than spoiling it. We don't want to do that. We, I... I think we recommend you go and watch it. Yes. With some friends, with some drinks maybe. Have a good time. I Kids, I recommend that you watch this before voting in the poll on Twitter or Instagram on who won. Because I know you've seen his movie when we get to it, which you've already seen because it's, you know, in the title of this episode. But... Watch me. Watch, watch Buffy. Give me a fair shake before you vote. Yeah. Give, give Buffy a fair shake. Um, so let's talk about the reception. How this was received. I think, like, I think we know, like, the type <laughs> of movie this is, we know how it was received by our audiences. So, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer debuted at number five in North American box office and eventually grossed $16 million against a $17 million production budget. Woot. So, usually with movie budgets, you have to double what the production budget is because it's marketing, mm-hmm. right? I doubt the marketing matched the 700 but usually it's, like, around $14 million, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, it made its money back. But not by much. Barely. Yeah. So it's like not a not an abject failure, but it wasn't like a runaway success either. You know. So I bet HBO and home video was where this movie thrived. Yeah. Yeah. As most cult, cult classics do. Right. And though the script had been praised by Hollywood insiders and some critics praised the fun concept, the film as a whole was not well received by critics. Well, I wonder why. Most cited the inconsistent tone. So inconsistent. Which has. And that's the thing. We've talked about everything. It's like from from the mismanagement of the script to the director to the actors not acting correctly to the studio meddling. It's like everything that could go wrong with a Hollywood Absolutely movie did. happened. <laughs> um, and I got a quote from the South Florida Sun Sentinel. It said, quote, despite a promising setup replete with oodles of valley girl lingo and clickish quips, Vampire, Buffy the Vampire Slayer becomes a comedy of missed opportunities and banal action, which I think is a pretty fair assessment. Banal? Is that how you pronounce it? Banal. That, I usually say banal. 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 I will say there is some, much like, like we will never talk about the Heathers on this podcast. Knock on wood. But That's, like, an, that's another Valley Girl like thing yeah, going on at the time with yeah. Heathers. Yeah. So Heathers came out in 88, and there's like a lot of like lingo that is in that movie that was made up for that movie, but that was taken into the lexicon of American teenagers. Like, like, what's your deal? What's your pill? Or what, what, like, I think being a pill was something that was in it or, or damage. What's your damage was not a thing that was in the lexicon at all in the colloquialisms of American. And it like made sense. And we took it from Heather's. Yeah. Sitch is in here. I thought Sitch came from freaking Kim Possible. Like they say, what's the Sitch in this and in the TV show, and it's just things like that where I'm yep. like, oh, there are like long lasting. And you can tell that Joss was trying to insert other type of slangs, like, "What are you ho-? like? Don't be a homeless, right?" They say that a few times, like, yeah. "homeless" as a noun. 
Which but, is terrible. Yep. Yeah. So I have actually quite a bit to talk about for the legacy of Buffy. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I will sit here and listen. Kids, be- this is going to be news to me as well. You, you've seen the show. Oh. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> All right. A few years after the release of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, uh, television, television executive Gail Berman approached Joss Whedon to develop a version of Buffy for television. One more faithful to his original vision, which is like a great thing. Yeah. It was like that could not ha- – like m- like nine times out of ten, that would not have happened. Yeah, absolutely. And even saying that, right? Like we watched the fir- – this is a thing we don't ever do, but we watched the first two episodes of Buffy because it was basically a two-parter. It was – what the movie should have been in those two hours, one. And two, really, when we were watching it, like, the movie is, like, a prequel because when we're in the TV show, it's like, oh, yeah, uh, my last school, the gym was full of vampires, so I killed them all. Yep. So I I said, uh, I wrote here, Whedon wrote a non-broadcast pilot using his original script as the backstory, and the show was sold to the WDB in 96. So basically the show is sort of a sequel to the script that never happened, right? So you can kind of treat the movie as a prequel to the show, but they mucked up the, yeah, you know, the the timing of everything, or whatever. Because yeah. Buffy's a senior mm-hmm. in the in the movie, but she's not a senior in the show, right? It's it's all weird. But basically, the script served as the backstory for the show that was made, right? Exactly. Um, the Buffy show ran from 1997 to 2003 with Whedon running er, – with Whedon serving as the showrunner for the first five seasons. And it's – you know, it was really funny to watch the first two episodes of Buffy the show. Mm-hmm. Buffy the movie is the, w- like firmly a early 90s movie. Yeah. <laughs> Everything from the, st- the styles, <laughs> the fashion, the, you know, the, the neon lights, <laughs> the lingo is so early 90s. And then the show is so firmly late, late 90s. 90s. <laughs> Everything from the, you know, the mesh shirts to the oh, yeah. fuzzy hats to the frosted tips. <laughs> yeah. To the late 90s alternative rock. <laughs> it's all there. Uh, so it is, it is really funny to watch both. Um, anyway, Fran Rubel Kazooie and Kaz Kazooie, you know, the director of the Buffy movie and her husband, were named executive producers for the entire show's run. That's so interesting. Even though they had nothing to do with its production. Mm. Their credit, rights, and royalties over the franchise relate to their funding, producing, and directing of the original movie. And that's it. Ooh, that's annoying. So they've ridden the coattails of Buffy the Vampire Slayer for their entire career. That's super annoying. Like, I, I'm not going to like discount their their role in getting this property off the ground. That's true. But like, that's really weird to like continue to get you know executive producer credit. You know that means. They get some money. They get some royalties from this show. Yeah. And every Buffy... Thing. thing. Merchandise. <laughs> yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer enjoyed critical acclaim and strong viewership on the WB, and it spawned the Buffyverse yeah. multimedia franchise, which includes the 1999 spinoff show Angel, Yep. novel continuations, comic books, video games, and other licensed merchandise. I only count Angel. Um, one comic series in particular, 1999's The Origin retells the events of the movie by adapting and remaining faithful to Joss Whedon's original script. So apparently this comic book is... What the movie should have been. What the movie should have been, if Joss Whedon had his way. I'd pick that up. Uh, Whedon considers this book canon while dismissing dismissing the movie entirely. (laughs) I like the movie, Joss. Yeah. 
And in 2009, it was reported that Vertigo Entertainment were working with Fran Rubel-Kazooie and Kaz Kazooie to produce, produce a Buffy reboot film without the involvement of Joss Whedon. No. Everyone from fans to cast members of the TV show expressed disapproval for this idea. And luckily, nothing has happened uh, with the project since. Thank goodness. Yep. And in 2018, it was reported that a reboot sequel Buffy series was in development with Whedon's involvement this time, uh, which will focus on a more diverse group of vampire hunters. Cool, because yep. they were all very white. I, I saw I, I saw uh, some clips of an interview with like the uh, I think I think it's the showrunner or producer uh, lady who is trying to get this project off the ground, and like she seemed like she knew what she was talking about. So that's exciting. Yeah, we'll see if it comes to fruition. Yeah. <laughs> what what streaming platform it will go to? Oh, uh, that's fair. <laughs> Peacock. Well, I mean, it's a Disney property. Maybe, but that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. A- as we said, we recommend it as a you know fun movie night movie. So it, it's I don't know if it's a so bad it's good movie. In some ways, it is. Yeah, I don't even know how to answer that. Kids, watch it for yourself. Like, you and know, let us know. Let us know what you think. If you're like, oh, Jess, no, no. Or if you're like, yeah, Jess, yeah. That was a lot of fun. But anyway, we're going to close out this segment with I Ain't Gonna Eat Out My Heart Anymore by The Divinals, which closed the movie out. Mm. So we'll see you on the other side with my movie of 1992. <laughs> That's right, I lead a dangerous life. Time for these messages. He's every girl's fantasy. I'm Pike. Hi. Hi. She's every vampire's nightmare. I'm the chosen one, and there are vampires? There's something going on around here, something real weird. But together, they're turning a prom from hell. Into a dream come true. Christy Swanson and Luke Perry. Buffy. You're not like other girls. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hey, we're back. And uh, that is a song that we're coming in with. It's called Arabian Nights from my movie of 1992. And uh, you've all probably seen it. It's Aladdin. (laughs) Disney's Aladdin, to be more exact. Uh, Released November 25th, 1992, featuring the voice talents of Scott Weinger, (laughs) Robin Williams, Linda Larkin, Jonathan Freeman, Frank Welker, Gilbert Gottfried, and Douglas Seale. Directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, with songs by Alan Menken, Tim Rice, and Howard Ashman. Aladdin. Arabian Nights! (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yep, that is, uh, that's it. (laughs) So, as we mentioned earlier, I was born in 1992. March of 92, I was born, right? This movie came out my birth year. So, to, uh, tell the story of, uh, 
my history with this movie, I want to introduce a new segment to our podcast. Okay. And that segment is called Mom Texts. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, I texted my mom out of the blue a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, I'm going to read these I'm going to read these texts verbatim. I said, hey, mom, what was the first movie that I saw in a theater? Hi, son. Aladdin. (laughs) (laughs) But you were, you were a small baby. I was six months old. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Or no, no, I was uh, November. So I was nine months old. At least, like at least. Mm. Um, Apparently she took my older sister, her best friend, and me to the theater I just texted her one word. I said, why? Why? (laughs) And she said, because I wanted to see it. (laughs) So PSA, everybody, don't take your babies to to the movie theater. Movie theaters don't exist in this future. Like, you know, nowadays with, you know, Disney Plus Premier Access and stuff like that, you never have to take your your babies to the movie theater. In fact, no one needs to go to the movie theater ever. No. I mean, even if you love the movie theater, don't take your babies. Yeah. If you really love the movie theater, think of the adults. <laughs> right. So, yes, this was the first movie I technically saw in the theater as a baby. <laughs> anyway, yes, this is uh, – that's the thing. I, I, I'm sure everyone's seen this movie. You know, it's just like Beauty and the Beast. It's a – I've never seen it before. Don't lie to me. <laughs> hey, you had seen this movie before. No. Right? She's, she's saying try, – she's trying to not break. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you watch it as a kid? Yeah. Um, I definitely didn't watch it as an adult. <laughs> obviously, I did because I watched it with you. But yeah, no, I, I can't remember when I saw it. Um, I know I've seen it a couple of times, though. Right. And so, yeah, like, I had seen it apparently in the theater as a baby. Uh, like, I, I had asked her after that. I was like, did you fuss? Like, I might have been in the text that she sent after that. Yeah, she didn't say, but I was like, did, did I fuss at all? Like, she, I, I guess I like I, I was able to, like, you know, handle it for half the movie and then she had to leave because I was crying. So it's like <laughs> so she didn't get to see how it ended. I guess not. Um, but then when it came out on VHS tapes in those classic Disney clamshells, yeah. uh, yep, just watched it a bunch with her, without her. Just you just watch it a lot, you know, <laughs> and uh, there's one other movie from the Disney Renaissance that I probably watched more than this one. But this this is a close second, yeah. I think. Yeah. So it's like that one that hasn't come out yet, and we haven't talked about it yet. <laughs> but we will. That was number one. But this is was it Lilo and Stitch? That that was not a Renaissance film. <laughs> um. Anyway, so Aladdin. You want to tell us what, what's this movie about? Uh, tell us. Tell us the characters and some. Save for one. We're gonna save the big character for later. But tell us some characters in the movie and what's the movie about. Uh, it is about a orphan or street rat named Aladdin, Aladdin, um, who tricks a kingdom into believing he's a prince so that he can marry the hot girl he met one time. That, that is the basic gist of the film. So yes, we have this, uh, I wanted to say low life, but that's not right. Like he's, <laughs> you're thinking of the twisted version. He's a small, he's a small, he's a small, poor boy, teenager, uh, living in the Arabian city of Agrabah. And uh, he, he just needs to, you know, scrape by to get... Just to eat. Yep, scrape to get food and that kind of thing. And uh, here's, a, here's a clip to introduce him. Morning, ladies. Getting into trouble a little early today, aren't we, Aladdin? Trouble? <laughs> no way. You're only in trouble if you get caught. Gotcha! I'm in trouble. <laughs> so he's constantly getting in trouble with the law. The uh, the Sultan's guards are chasing him down. It seems like this is a daily... For petty occur- death. <laughs> for for petty, petty theft. theft. He didn't kill anybody. <laughs> 
Though we, as far as we know. Uh, we, we, I assume that this is a daily occurrence. Right. Uh, he's got to steal from the marketplace and then run from the guards. That's his, that's his job. He should really move to a different city if he's that well-known. He's like, oh, I wonder where he's going to steal from. Either the bread stall or the apple stall. And so he's our male lead. Um, and in, in grand Disney fashion, he has lofty dreams in life and, and wants to get by. Um, and then the other central character is who? Princess Jasmine. Yep. She is the daughter of the Sultan. And uh, her apparently her role in this society is to get married. Yep. Dearest, you've got to stop rejecting every suitor who comes to call. The law says you, you must, must be, be married, married to, to a, a prince, prince by your next birthday. The law is wrong. You've only got three more days. Father, I hate being forced into this. If I do marry, I want it to be for love. So those are those are the starting points for our characters, and from there it is a hodgepodge of the original Aladdin legend that's often associated with the A Thousand and One Nights, right. Arabian Nights collection. Um, I studied medieval literature in college. Uh, Aladdin was not originally included in A Thousand and One Nights. Mm-hmm. It was not one of the tales, but it kind of got roped in by, you know... Uh, merchants that travel to the Middle East and then back to Europe and like would bring tales back. Right. So the tale of Aladdin and the magic lamp was brought to England and it just kind of, you know, got absorbed into the canon of the other Arabian stories. Right. So um the the legend is all the same. Yeah, that's what they thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean that's the thing, like legends like Aladdin and Sinbad the Sailor were much more fleshed out. So a lot of those Thousand and One Night stories are pretty basic, mm-hmm. you know, and they're very body and, and like, you know, dirty. <laughs> um, I have not read the original Aladdin Legend, so I don't know if it's filthy, you know. <laughs> like the rest are. But, uh, you know, the, everyone knows the, the basic gist of the legend, you know, like a poor boy uh, somehow gets his hand on a magic lamp. Magic lamp has a genie inside and it grants him wishes. And he makes those wishes and becomes a king. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. In the original one. I have no idea. But that's the archetype. Right, right. Um, this movie, the tale is all this time. Right. The movie follows those beats pretty closely, you know? Like, it's it's more or less the Aladdin legend that most people know. Right. And then it also has elements from a popular film called The Thief of Baghdad, which is like a, a golden era, like, silent... I think it, I think it has, like, there's a silent movie, and then it was remade later mm. uh, with, with Sabu the... The, the Jungle Boy or something. Okay. Is he Sabu the Elephant Boy? Is that his name? Oh, I have no idea. There was a legit... This is all news to me. There was a child actor in like the 50s named Sabu the Elephant Boy. Hold on. Sabu the Elephant Boy. All right. In the 30s and 40s. Okay. <laughs> so The Thief of Baghdad is a not an Aladdin story, but it's a movie set in the Middle East. Mm. And, you know, so they're just like, yeah, just get it in there. Get it in there. <laughs> Uh, so let me let me unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about the, the making of this movie a little bit. So uh, this is a continuation. If this is your first episode, uh, we have done – we've kind of tracked the history of uh, Disney and Disney feature animation through mm-hmm. some of our episodes. Uh, check out our 1988 movie episode where we talked about Oliver and Company. We yes. talked about the history of Disney Animation Studios. And then we talked Beauty right. and the Beast. Right. We talked a lot about the Disney Renaissance and how that got started. So this is kind of a 
continuation of our 1991 movie episode. An animated musical adaptation of Aladdin was the pet project of lyricist Howard Ashman, who, as we talked about in our 91 movies episode, had written songs with, with Alan Menken for Disney's The Little Mermaid and The Beauty and the Beast, right? And I would say those two men, Ashman and Menken, are probably the two men that are most responsible for that Disney formula. Yeah. That was like the winning formula in the 90s, right? Right. Basically turning Broadway musicals into animated classics, and it worked fabulously, right? So Howard Ashman, he was the lyricist. He was the guy who he wrote for A Little Shop of Horrors. Mm -hmm. He wrote all of the songs in Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. He had been wanting to make an Aladdin musical for years. Yeah. And he had grand designs. Like he wanted it to be this grand, almost like a 30s-style musical, Cab Calloway-style musical, (laughs) you know, with big bopper songs and parachute pants. Oh, gosh. Gaucho pants. I don't know. I don't know. You see pictures of Cab Calloway. He's always got big floppy pants. I will Google Cab Calloway right now because I have no idea what you're talking about. Give me his whole body. I want his body. He's got big shoulders. Big sh- So many shoulder pads. Eh, okay. Big baggy pants? Yeah, they're kind of baggy. <laughs> they're kind of, they're like a little flared. They're a little bell-bottomy. Anyway. Anyway. So Ashman uh, had written a 40-page film treatment, remaining faithful to the plot and characters of the original story, and then conceived several songs with his collaborator, Alan Menken. Disney initially dismissed Ashman's treatment with Disney Studios film division head and petty a-hole, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Ah, the petty a-hole. Yep. I I think I briefly mentioned this in our Beauty and the Beast episode, but Jeffrey Katzenberg at a Hollywood party was talking to Alan – or sorry, talking to Howard Ashman. And Howard Ashman said, hey, Beauty and the Beast – or." Little Mermaid, it's a huge it was a huge success. It was it was you know, we 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 made so much money. Right. I made so much money for you people. Give me Aladdin. I wanna work on this Aladdin thing. I've got I've got it I've been it's in the works, it's a dream of mine. I really, really want to make this Aladdin movie. And Katzenberg in a way only Katzenberg could twisted his arm and said, No, I want you on Beauty and the Beast instead. Mm. So he convinced Howard Ashman to abandon the Aladdin project in favor of Beauty and the Beast. And it worked out for Beauty and the Beast. It yeah. was, you know, a great film, cr- made money. critical success, made a lot of money, but they put Aladdin on the shelf. So in the meantime, Aladdin was rewritten by Linda Wolverton, who wrote the screenplay for Beauty and the Beast, uh, with a new script incorporating elements from the adventure film The Thief of Baghdad, as I mentioned. Uh, fresh off The Little Mermaid, Directors Ron Clements and John Musker were offered three different projects for their next picture. Mm-hmm. Aladdin was one. Number two was an adaptation of Swan Lake. And three was King of the Jungle, which eventually became The Lion King. Okay. Um, and they chose Aladdin. Yay! I, I, I want to hope that it was like as a, as a solid for Howard Ashman. You're right. Um, anyway, uh, here's where... Uh, things get sad. Things get real sad. Um Tragically, Howard Ashman passed away due to AIDS March 14th, 1991, days after the first screening of Beauty and the Beast. He was bedridden on the day of the premiere. Mm. It's really sad. Um, it is. This whole scene is described in the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. It's very touching. Um, like, I guess the story was um, one of the producers, like, they all visited him in the hospital yeah. after going to the premiere. And one of the producers, as everyone was leaving, he whispered in Howard's ear. And Howard was very 
you know, uh, uh, fatigued and, mm-hmm. and weak. And he said, who would have thought this movie would have like been so successful or would have come together so well? And he said, I would, <laughs> I would have known, you know? So like, that was like the last time most of those people had spoken to him. Mm. So Howard Ashman never got to see any of the work done on Aladdin. You know whose fault that is? Jeffrey Katzenberg. Petty a-hole. Yep. <sighs> That's sad. That's real sad. Especially considering, like, we just talked about how Joss Whedon was, like, it was taken from him, the thing that he wanted to do, and then we, like, he got to do it. He got that thing that artists hardly ever get to do, which is to go back to their dream, their their work, and see it done the way they want it done. And that sucks. And Howard Ashman did not, was not allowed that. Yeah, exactly. It sucks. It really sucks. And it's great that this film finally got made, you know, in his memory. Yeah. But the poor man never got to see it. It was yeah. his pet project for years. For years. He wanted to put Aladdin in the zoot suit. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. It's a zoot suit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Out of the 16 songs written for Aladdin by Ashman, only three ended up in the finished film. Ugh. Yeah. A lot, so a lot of those songs have actually been released, I think, commercially since then. Like mm-hmm. ha- Ashman's original song, like the most popular one is Proud of Our Boy, <laughs> which is a song that was sung by Aladdin's mother who was cut from the movie. Oh. Yeah, Aladdin had a mother character who said she was proud of her boy. That's cute. Can we close with that? I've never heard that song. Uh, no, we cannot. But Darn it. <laughs> go, go look that up if you care. That sucks. I hope his ghost is haunting. <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg wakes up at night with nightmares of Howard Ashman. It's just he wakes up and all he hears is, proud of my boy. Anyway, uh, songwriter Tim Rice, who had worked on musicals like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And Jesus Christ Superstar. But a lot of biblicals. Yeah. Uh, He was brought on to work with Mencken on the remainder of the soundtrack. So um, we'll talk about the soundtrack a little later. Um, I don't know, knowing, after really digging into the Disney stuff, like I could tell which songs were Howard Ashman songs and which ones weren't. Huh. Like it was just, it's like a sixth sense. (laughs) It it had that uh, Joss Whedon kick to it. It had that uh, Howard Ashman style flair yeah, signature yeah. Uh, in April 1991 Musker and Clements wrote a new draft of the screenplay and then delivered a story reel to Jeffrey Katzenberg petty a hole <laughs> uh, Katzenberg thought the script quote didn't engage and on a day now known by the staff as Black Friday demanded that the entire story be rewritten without rescheduling the film's November 1992 release date that means they had a year and a half to rewrite the entire movie and make it. <laughs> That's a trash human thing to do. He was a cut... Like, there's there's a reason he has the reputation he does. Katzenberg is a cutthroat businessman. I He's, feel like he was running a sweatshop. It feels like he was running a sweatshop. Yes. There, there was an entire, like, segment of Waking Sleeping Beauty where the animators admit that they were worked to death. But at the same time, they were, like... It's like an abusive relationship. They were like, part of it was our fault. We, we, we had the money. We had the accolades. And we just wanted to keep working more and more. And it's like, guys, you were being exploited. Yeah. And that's just also the response of the abused. I mean, it was a little my fault. I did speak too loudly. Oh. So anyway, just let you guys know, these excellent films were made in haste. <laughs> and like under tight deadlines. Crunch is bad. Crunch is real bad. 
Crunch bars are the worst candy. <laughs> anyway, uh, Katzenberg also insisted that the directors not feel bound to Ashman's, uh, Ashman's original vision and suggested several changes. Like, that was an explicit thing he said. He's like, hey, don't feel bound to Ashman's stuff. Ugh. Which seems very sacrilegious. I don't know. It just, I hope he's haunted. <laughs> And like I said, a few of those changes were get rid of the mother. I, I was reading like there's a quote from Ashman. Or sorry, there's a quote by Katzenberg. He's like, the mother, she's a loser. She's not a winner. Get out. <laughs> you know, like the, la- like the last piece of the puzzle, I feel like, the thing that really turned this movie into a, um, like a bona fide hit and really got the ball rolling was Musker and Clements created the genie character mm-hmm. with one man in mind. And who was that man? Pee Wee Herman. No. <laughs> man, that would have been something. Nope. <laughs> no, no. That man was Robin Williams. Comedian Robin Williams, he, they wanted him as the genie from the start. Like, yeah. the minute they rewrote that script, they're like, Robin Williams needs to be the genie. He's the key to all this. Right, right. So, um, you can find the, these videos online, like, very short clips. Apparently, they took a stand-up special that Robin Williams had done, mm-hmm. right? And animated the genie, like... Saying the words that that Robin Williams said so on stage, yeah. yeah. So it they're like having fun with uh, like the genie like turning into things mm-hmm. and, and like creating puffs, of, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, creating things in puffs of smoke and stuff like that. So they just animated, basically, they did an animated version of Robin Williams' stand-up special mm-hmm. with the genie character talking to Aladdin yeah. instead of an audience. Yeah. And so they did this without asking Robin Williams to be in the movie yet. They just did it as, hey, we want to have some fun and see what we can do. And they showed it to Robin to say, hey, would you like to be in our movie? And Robin like laughed his butt off. Yeah. And he said, that is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Yes, I will do this movie. And we'll talk a little bit more about his demands for being in the movie. <laughs> Let's just say he uh, agreed. His requests. He agreed to be paid at, uh, at SAG scale, uh, Screen Actors Guild scale. He was a working actor. He said, okay, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. That's all we'll say for now. Um, interesting note, Katzenberg also suggested if Robin Williams wasn't going to be involved, actors like John Candy, Steve Martin, and Eddie Murphy. No. I'm sorry. Mushu the genie. <laughs> I think that's why Eddie Murphy played Mushu in yeah, Milan. Is because, I totally get that. Yeah. But, but that is how Aladdin came to be and how it became the movie we all know and love today. So jumping into Aladdin... Um, before we get into the songs and Robin Williams as the genie and stuff like that, I kind of just want to talk about the adventure plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. Because as a little boy, that's probably the thing that I connected with the most, right? Because this wasn't a princess movie, right? There is a princess in it, but this is more of an adventure movie. Right. About like, you know, a young man going on an adventure, swashbuckling and magic and secret treasures. I think it's probably the first movie of Disney, or at least the Disney Renaissance, that was like, it's not a princess movie, right? Like, the only movies I can think of from Disney, like after, after they like it rebooted itself, that are our men leads are Aladdin, Hercules, and Tarzan, right? And Lion King, but um, like for that, right? So it it isn't a princess movie. It's very much for the. It's like we can get the boys too, right? And 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 as a first attempt at doing that, it did a pretty good dang job. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, so let's talk about the, the MacGuffin of the film. And what is that MacGuffin? What's a MacGuffin? A MacGuffin is what is an object that all of the characters want. It's the thing that makes the plot happen. 
The princess? No. <laughs> the lamp! Yes. There is a magic lamp, a fabled magic lamp that houses a genie. And obviously, genies grant wishes, so everyone wants this lamp. One, well, at the start of the movie, one man in particular wants that lamp. And who is that man? Jafar. The villain of the movie, Jafar. The Cave of Wonders. Huh? Cave of Wonders? By Allah. Now, remember, bring me the lamp. The rest of the treasure is yours, but the lamp is mine. So that is Jafar. He is the... The royal vizier of Agrabah. <laughs> so he's an evil uh, advisor to the king, essentially. Right. He's like a Brutus. Brutus. Brute. More like a Cassius. Yeah. He's, you know, he, he's manipulative. He's evil. He's, he's a sorcerer. Or not quite a sorcerer. What is he? It's like he, he dabbles in like alchemy. And, and, yeah. And, no, no. I think this, this movie definitely says sorcerer. Yeah. That's what they call. Oh, I guess he turns himself into it anyway. <laughs> right. So he he knows he he's a, he's a professor of the dark arts. <laughs> <laughs> he knows about this lamp, and his sole focus is to get that lamp because he is evil and wants more power. Right. So he uses all of the tricks in the book to get it: manipulation, threatening, treachery, magic. Like he literally hypnotizes the sultan with a magic staff. Yeah. And that's st- that's all of, like the kind of stuff like that adventure movie stuff that is as a kid I connected with the most. Jafar, he has a secret lab hidden in the palace Mm -hmm. where he uses secret doors to get in. You know, like he pulls on like a little chandelier to open up a magic. Why do we even have that lever? Sorry. (laughs) Very similar. (laughs) And also he's he's always just in the background. He's always got a plan. And uh, we heard in that clip he's also got (laughs) everyone in this movie has an animal familiar. (laughs) You're right. And uh, as a as a, uh, an avid Dungeons and Dragons player, <laughs> uh, I connect with that a lot now. Every character has a familiar. How would like a familiar? Uh, Jafar, his animal familiar is what? An Iago. A parrot named Iago. Voiced by Gilbert Godfrey. I can't believe it. I just don't believe it. We're never going to get a hold of that stupid lamp. Just forget it. Look at this. Look at this. I'm so ticked off that I'm molting. Patience, Iago. Patience. Do we misremember that line? No, he says says it it in another place. What does he say? Calm yourself, Iago. Calm yourself, Iago. I quote that. Often. So often. You're just nodding. Just anytime somebody's being a little extra, I'm like, calm yourself, Iago. Because I had heard that that the clip we just played is like, patience, Iago. Right? Like, I'm like, does she say that wrong? But he does say, calm yourself, Iago, later. In a different place, yeah. Right. So I feel like Robin Williams overshadows Gilbert Godfrey's performance in this movie. <laughs> Gilbert Godfrey is perfect. Yeah. He's a perfect parrot. Yes, he is. Perfect parrot. <laughs> a perfect Henri parrot. <laughs> And uh, he's he's upstaged by Robin Williams, which is not fair. He does an excellent job. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Aladdin, he has an animal familiar. Who is that? Abu. I, a, a boo, a monkey? I don't have a clip of a boo. That's because it's just screeching. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Raja. Do you have a clip of Raja? I don't. Yeah. But uh, Princess Jasmine has a giant tiger friend named... She is the tiger queen. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just she was Siegfried and or Roy. <laughs> so, um, also introduced in that clip with Jafar, he mentions the Cave of Wonders. 
So the Cave of Wonders is probably one of the coolest elements in this whole dang movie from, mm. like, a story and technical perspective. It is a giant animated in the – it comes to life sense, but also it's 3D animated. Mm-hmm. But it's a giant tiger that emerges from the sand in the desert. Yeah. And speaks, and when it opens its mouth, you know, it becomes stairs that people can descend into the Cave of Wonders. And uh, so I have a clip of the Cave of Wonders here. Who disturbs my uh, It is I, Aladdin. Proceed. Touch nothing but the lamp. Oh, remember, boy, first fetch me the lamp. And then you shall have your reward. So that that sequence is straight up adventure. <laughs> like the movie, well, you had talked about it. It's like the movie stops being a musical for a while. Yeah. I was like, I feel like it's been 15 minutes since there was a song. <laughs> and it's so video gamey, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in 1989, and I don't think, I'm not saying that the, the directors of this movie and the writers stole from this video game. I think they both came from the same, like, they both had the same Source inspirations. Um, but there was a video game called The Prince of Persia. Yes. So y- you've probably heard of Prince of Persia maybe as a movie. Yes. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was a popular reboot of Prince of Persia in the 2000s. But in 1989, there was a video game called The Prince of Persia for the Apple II computer. <laughs> oh. And Microsoft DOS. <laughs> MS-DOS. Oh. Um, it's, it, it was an adventure platform inspired by the Thief of Baghdad. About a young, the Prince of Persia, I guess, you know, a young man who's cast into a dungeon of an Arabian castle and has to descend out of the dungeon and rescue the princess, like his, his, his love interest, from the evil Grand Vizier Jafar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think the Jafar character is straight up just rif- ripped from the Thief of Baghdad. So Jafar is a stock character that's not unique to... This movie. this movie, okay, right. So the all of this adventure stuff in Aladdin just reminds me of Prince of Persia, <laughs> and even the Legend of Zelda and other fun adventure video games. Yeah, like because just leaning there. There's dungeons and secret passageways and treasures and treasure chests <laughs> and rules and <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Yeah, like before Aladdin even shows up at the Cave of Wonders, he's locked in the dungeon. Um, by Jafar. By Jafar and the palace guards because he's supposedly kidnapped the princess. Yeah. And um, Aladdin is, you know, in this dank, deep dungeon that seems like something straight out of a video game or like The Legend of Zelda specifically. Yeah. And another prisoner comes and frees him and tells him about uh, like a, the legend of the Cave of Wonders. Who are you? A lowly prisoner like yourself. But together, perhaps we can be more. I'm listening. There is a cave, boy. A cave of wonders, filled with treasures beyond your wildest dreams. Treasure enough to impress even your princess, I'd wager. Like, just, so, even, and that happens, and then right after that, like, Aladdin asks, like, well, well, how do we get out of this dungeon, then? And he's like, not everything is as it seems, boy. And And he... he, Hagrid's... (laughs) He, like, pushes a stone in the wall, and it opens up this secret passageway, and you see, like, the glow of the morning sun outside, and they're like, cool, we can escape. Or you see, like, torchlight or something, right? And 
that kind of stuff, like secret passageways in old castles and old palaces, like I just want to explore that palace now. You know, <laughs> I want to. I would love a full-on 3D video game where you can explore the the palace of Agrabah with all its secret chambers. Oh, what about um, Kingdom Hearts? No, <laughs> like Kingdom Hearts Two does a pretty good job of recreating the streets of Agrabah. I will say that, but I want a dungeon crawly Legend of Zelda, or even there's there's a old video game series called Kingsfield with you know secret doors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I want to explore that palace. <laughs> I want to go I into want ja- it. I want to go in Jafar's secret chambers and you know and see his his magic toys. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to explore the Cave of Wonders. As a little boy, that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. If that had been an attraction at one of the Disney's. Oh my gosh. Imagine. <laughs> you got so excited. You're like, oh, "Why did we miss out on that?" <laughs> Disney, get your act together. Once COVID is over, Open up a Cave of Wonders walkthrough attraction oh, are we at going? Disneyland. Yes. No! That's the thing. Like, Disneyland in, in Anaheim doesn't even have very much Aladdin stuff. Yeah. There, there's Adventureland that has, like... The Aladdin show? It's like an Aladdin show, Aladdin, like, promenade. I don't know. Like, mm. it's got, like, you know, kind of Arabian-style flair to it, mm-hmm. you know? But... That's it. Like, yeah. you can meet the characters and, you know, take pictures with Aladdin and Jasmine. But it's not an attraction. Yeah. It's just kind of like an area. Yeah. And I think uh, Iago is in the uh, the Tiki Lounge. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I believe that yeah. as well. Yeah. You'd, you'd go there by yourself. Right. With so, all those unvaccinated children. Oh, dear. But as we said, or as that clip said, the Cave of Wonders says, hey, you need to go into the Cave of Wonders. You can touch nothing but the lamp. Right. Can you describe what the Cave of Wonders is filled with and what it looks like? It uh, looks like somewhere that Scrooge McDuck would take everything. Oh, yeah. Scrooge McDuck would not be able to walk through the Cave of Wonders. He is not an uncut gem. <laughs> <laughs> um, he is not the minch. Uh, it is basically just a, a big old underground cave with stalagmites made out of gold. Heaps of gold, piles of gold, like pottery that, that looks expensive. It's probably from the Ming Dynasty. <laughs> like gemstones and like stuff. Yeah, a thief's smorgasbord, a thief's uh, disco wonderland. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a thief's discotheque, if you will. Right, discotheca. Also inside, he discovers a magic, uh, a, fl- a fl- flying carpet, which we decided it's the carpet's name is Rugman. Jake Rugman. Jake Rugman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any clips of the magic carpet, but it is a a masterclass in expressive animation. Yeah. This we had decided that um Doctor Strange probably like the animators on the cape probably were watching Aladdin because like a lot of the the character that you see in the rug in uh Sir Rugman is in Sir Capenton. Right. So it's like any of you young yeah, yeah. animators out there, you want to know how do I make an inanim- inanimate object, you know, like just, or a mute, like, object have expressiveness? Mm-hmm. Watch Aladdin's Magic Carpet. Yeah, especially if you're doing something that's not yeah. like in the form, like Toy Story. They look human. They're humanoid. Non humanoid, non humanoid objects. Mute. Giving them personification. Right. I feel like you should watch Aladdin's Carpet and then. Luxo Jr. 
the the lamp short that Pixar did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one with the ball. <laughs> and that, dear listener, is where we get the star of the show. <laughs> oh yeah. Because once they reach the heart of this cave of wonders, Aladdin in like that iconic scene finds the magic lamp. And what what follows is gosh, can you explain what happens? There's a big action chase scene. Um, so Aladdin has done his job, has found the lamp, and he is the uncoat diamond in the rough gemstone good boy. Turns around to see his grubby, thieving monkey grabbing a jewel from a golden monkey, and everything turns to lava. You are. The floor is lava, the the walls are lava, the ceiling is lava, the stairs you're stepping on, lava. Everything is lava, folks. So it's this very action-packed uh, scene where Aladdin has to fly through a crumbling cave of wonders on the flying carpet. And it also feels like a straight-up video game scene. Yeah. Like, I, I, I have not played the Aladdin video games from the early 90s, but I assume that is a level in one of them. <laughs> You're flying on the carpet, dodging rocks. Yeah. <laughs> flying... Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> but, but against all odds, he is successful, mm-hmm. but trapped in the Cave of Wonders yes. that has been closed. Yes. But he has the lamp. Mm-hmm. And within the lamp, when he rubs it, is... Paul Rubens. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's the genie. 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. Hang on a second. Ah. Whoa! Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm telling you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? Or how about Lottie? Sounds like here, boy. Come on, Lottie. <laughs> Lottie. That was a 29-second clip, and <laughs> that man shoved in, like, 30 jokes. <laughs> like a joke a second. Yeah. Like, Robin Williams is perfect in this role. Yes. The role was made for him. Yes. And, like, they knew the kind of powerhouse they had in the studio because mm-hmm. apparently the, the the directors of the movie said, Robin, just do your thing. <laughs> and he just ad-libbed the script. Like, he just went off. Because you and I have seen Robin Williams stand up before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, it seems like Robin Williams will just start a stand-up special with no material planned. He just makes fun of people and jokes with the people in the room at the time. Yeah. It's, he, and it's not like he's like doing that heckly thing. It's just like, oh, I'm just going to go and see what I see. Like he brings everybody in on the joke. He's very like a little ADD, definitely more than a little ADD. Yeah. But like the natural charismatic of the class clown. He, the person who has practice in just finding humor in everything. Right. And he just walks around and just like the first thing in his view of vision, he has a joke ready for it. Yeah. Like just do, 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 do. So in that clip, it's like, you know, oh, 10,000 years, you put a crick in the neck. And then it's just like, hey, what's your name? Oh, Al. They call you Al. They call you just Din. What? Lade. Lade. <laughs> and he's just doing impressions and telling jokes and making pop culture references. And it never stops. Nope. For the whole movie. <laughs> and it's excellent. Um, but I, I, I still, I want to reel it in a little bit. I don't want to, I don't want to go full Robin Williams just yet. Okay. I want to give the floor to you because we need to talk a bit, a little bit about the music in the film. Yeah. I think that like, all right, the music is pretty iconic here. Even though when we were rewatching it, right? Like the first song in the movie. It's called. Second. 
if we can't yeah, it, is, it is the second yeah it's the second song it's called one jump ahead one jump ahead i can get that started for us we can just talk about it while it's under us come on let's get out of here Gotta keep one jump ahead of the bread line, one swing ahead of the sword. I steal only what I can't afford. That's everything. One jump ahead of It's the a very line. iconic song, but you were saying, like, when we were talking about it, like, ah, oh, it's not even really that good. Even listening to it now, like, it's filled with, like, sound effects and, like, cartoony stuff. Yeah. Um, it's... It's not a good song. It's catchy, like, you know, street rat, riffraff, right? That kind of stuff, but... The song itself, I feel like, is just a vessel for, like, physical comedy. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's funny things going on in the song, but it's, like, not, not a very good song. Yeah. In fact, it's kind of annoying, and I kind of want to stop playing it. Oh, no. <laughs> it's for the children. No, I, I hear that, but I also think that, like, it's interesting because it, it doesn't necessarily stick to the same meter the whole time, right? Yeah. Like, where you're like, but then I was also like, just a... Like, it's going, like, all over the place. And I think, like, this is one of those things that are... I think the reason that you dislike... It's very musical theater. It is. It's very, very musical theater. Like, it's very... This is early, and we're, like, introducing characters. There's a lot of movement going on. Oh, I just punched myself in the ear. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of movement going on, and so you're incorporating that. That's why all the sounds are there. I don't know that um, Howard Ashman would have liked... Is this one of his songs? It is not. Didn't think so. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But I can see the, like, reason behind it, you know? We've got dialogue going on. (laughs) Hold up, turn that off. Uh, But yeah, I think that, like, though for... I was going to say that, like... It's not the best song, but it's like okay. But I I really appreciate the I Want song in this. Uh, I have that. So that's called it's Aladdin's I Want song. It's called One Jump Ahead Reprise, and this this is nice. And it tells you what Aladdin wants in life. As we said, the I Want song is where the leading lady says what she wants in life. He's the leading lady. Aladdin is the leading lady. Riff raff, street rat. I don't buy that. If only they'd look closer Would they see a poor boy? No siree They'd find out There's so much more to me And I think this does a good job, right? Like of kind of like setting up the journey that we're supposed to go on with Aladdin. And I, I like it because it's it's this, I want you guys to know me for who I really am. You only see the surface. But then he goes on to play this game and put on a facade and deny who and what he really is, right? Yep. Like, because he's being called a street rat, a thief, uh, someone who's taking from people that things that rightfully belong to other people. And in putting on this persona as Prince Ali... He's becoming a liar, a con artist, a thief who's inserting themselves into other people's, you know, kind of thing. So I really like how you see this I Want song. um, And it's obviously laying out his character, his character and what he what he truly wants. Right. And the conflict comes when like um, if this his biggest want is for people to see his true character so obviously the biggest conflict is going to come with him not being able to present his true character right and, and that's all and it's all on him at some point you know? yeah yeah and i just really like i appreciate that it does that and even that it's a pr- reprise of the other song and it's so short it's not like a full song it's 40 seconds probably yep and well, 44 you got it huh? <laughs> 44 woo 
And I just like really appreciate those small nods, right? I think that there's a lot that happens in this movie that can be overshadowed by the genie. Yep. Um, by the um, the swashbucklingness and things like that. But like the core of the story and how the music is supposed to complement it is nicely done, I think. I agree. Yeah. Like, I think so. I think we can use this as a jumping off point to talk about Aladdin's character. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Aladdin goes through kind of two character arcs in this, right? Like, it's it's all under one umbrella, but the main thing, like, one is he's down on his luck, he's poor, he's not in a place he wants to be, right? Right. But, you know, here it's like, I want them to see me for who I am, right? Mm-hmm. Or I, I don't, there's more to life than this, and he realizes it, and he feels, tr- he says it, he's like, I feel so trapped. <laughs> I got it right here. Wow, the palace looks pretty amazing, huh? How? Oh. It's wonderful. I wonder what it'd be like to live there. And have servants and valets. Oh, sure. People who tell you where to go and how to dress. <laughs> That's better than here. You're always scraping for food and ducking the guards. You're not free to make your own choices. Sometimes you feel so... You're just... Trapped. trapped. <laughs> So that's and, – and he, with the help of the genie, breaks through that. Right. And we all know genies grant three wishes. Mm-hmm. As yeah. we talked about with the DuckTales movie. <laughs> Aladdin's first wish is what? To be a prince? Yep. Yes. You got it. And so genie complies and makes him a prince named Prince Ali. Ali Ali Abi Ababa. Which transitions to our next song, Prince Ali. But, but before you go there. Uh-huh. Yes, our next song. We've, <laughs> this is like, I guess we've just had, uh, it's not our next song, but like, you've got a friend in me. <laughs> Basically. Friend like me. Friend like me. You've got a friend like me. <laughs> um, between, so it's like literally his I want I song. want song, and then probably like 20 ish minutes, minutes yeah. mm-hmm. and then it's, oh, we're a musical. Again. So, yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, you've got a friend in me, whatever it's called. Uh, and then maybe another five minutes, and then it's Prince Ali. Right. So the it's kind of uneven on whether it wants to be a musical in an adventure movie. Right. It's, I, I'm, it's I'm, fine. I'm down with it, man. Yeah. So let's, let's listen to Prince Ali for a second. That music. <laughs> Jafar, you must come and see this. Robin Williams even sings the song. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, uh, this this whole sequence is amazing visually. Mm. Um, just just like with One Step Ahead or One Jump Ahead, the the opening song with with Aladdin, right? Like I feel like the songs are strong songs. Not that one. Sorry. <laughs> this is this is a strong song, but they're both strong in that. They tell a lot of story with their visuals, right? Yeah. Like one step ahead, its visuals are better than the song itself. Mm-hmm. Like he he's like running through the marketplace, and there are dudes with you know they're like sword swallowers and fire breathers, and right. dudes laying on spikes, and he's constantly like you know getting involved with these folks to show off some kind of physical comedy. Right. There's like a strong man, and Aladdin is like hiding behind him, like yeah. mimicking his poses and stuff like that. And then with this song. They're showing off all of Aladdin, who is now Prince Ali, Ali mm-hmm. Baba, <laughs> um, and all of his his grandeur. He's got 
uh, 70, 72 golden camels or whatever, <laughs> you know, and peacocks. And he's got... It's all in the song, all the things he owns. Yep. And he's he's got the strength of 10 regular men. Oh, does he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it, like, does the job of, like, telling the difference between the humble Aladdin we see in the beginning to, like, what his wish fulfillment has brought him, right? right. Like, everything that he... I, I, I guess technically the genie, because the genie granted the wish in this manner, but we would seem like everything that he thinks goes with being royal, having money, being someone of note. Right. Which is a lot of stuff. And and that sets up the second arc, which is now he is playing a role. He's, right. He's not being himself, and it's his own doing this yeah. time. You know, it's it's... He feels he's doing what society is telling him to do, but at the meantime, he's just, you know, he's a liar. Yeah. And that's and that's <clears throat> the next arc is he needs to overcome his uh, deception or, like, tear yeah. down the facade. Yeah, overcome his own anxieties I- about his insecurities. He has to overcome his own insecurities and insecurities that he always had. But he now has the ability to, like, cover. Do Mask just them, blood? yeah. Yeah. Because, like, once you've got uh, the ability to put a mask on, like, taking it off. Right. Take off your mask. <laughs> Keep your masks on. We're in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Wear your mask. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the um, – it, it, it kind of, like, the the new the, – the Prince Ali persona kind of, like, you know, uh, causes friction with two characters in particular. And, like, one is Princess Jasmine. Right. The other Jafar. Well, Jafar, I think, sees through the whole thing. He he hates Prince of Blah Blah. Okay, then Genie. I'm talking about the Genie. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about Prince Jasmine first. Princess. Prince Jasmine. I mean, you know, <laughs> Princess Jasmine first because it sets up the next song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he does all of this because he met a girl, and she's real sweet, man. And he definitely fell in like. <laughs> and so he thinks. I don't know why he thinks this from the one conversation they had where she was like, Because it's a, it's a fairy rich tale. people. But um, she thinks, or he thinks the only way to get her attention or to get her to like care or want to be with him is to be this person. So he shows up swaggering and talking himself he's play, up. He's playing and, the role of the prince he thinks he needs to be. Right. And then not even talking to the girl, which was the reason she ran away for the first place. And just... Amongst her father and the vizier, we're discussing how, oh yeah, I'm gonna marry that woman whom I've said two sentences to by all of her accounts. I don't think they had even talked at that point. And so she's like furious, just like, look at all these men just planning my life. And she like walks away. And Aladdin realizes maybe he did wrong. So he goes and has a powwow. That's probably not the word to use. So he goes and has a pep talk with uh, the boys, which consists of Genie Carpet Abu. Yes. Who's now an elephant. Yes. And um, he gets great advice to tell her the truth. And be her, be yourself. To be himself. And he goes and does not do that. <laughs> yep. But he, 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 can, he lies to her, but she starts to realize it once he starts like letting the Aladdin slip. Yeah. How are you doing that? It's a magic carpet. It's lovely. You, uh, you don't want to go for a ride, do you? We could get out of the palace. Don't go to rides with the strange princess, girls. Safe? 
Sure, do you trust me? What'd she say? What? Do you trust me? She, she questions that because that is exactly what Aladdin told her early in the movie. Yeah. So she knows, yep, this, this guy's Aladdin. So I'm going to get on this magic carpet because I know it's him. <sighs> you know what? Even with all that, right? Like, so they, after the song, oh, were you going to play that song? I'll, I'll, I'll get it started. Yes. So they go off on their magical date. Literally all over the world. Uh, for some yep. for some reason, carpet is not just a flying carpet. It is a, like, TARDIS. Because <laughs> it's still nighttime, but somehow they're in China. They go to at, China, by the end of this. Greece, Egypt. Like, they're in, they're, they're in the Middle East. They're in what you, essentially is Baghdad. You could possibly get to see the pyramids on a carpet in that amount of time. Maybe. Maybe. But not all the other places. Anyway, magic. Um... And they sing on their little date. At the end of this date, they're sitting, watching fireworks in China. <laughs> and they did, not, they did not see Mulan. They did not see Mulan. Um, and they... And she's like, oh. And she, like, tricks him into, like, admitting that he's Aladdin. And then Aladdin she lies says, more. Yeah, she says, why did you lie to me? I wasn't, I wasn't lying. Uh, I just pretend to be a commoner. Why? Why would you dig your, like, like, so, but even that, like, hearkening back to, like, and now he's ashamed of himself, right? Like, now he's ashamed of who he always, who he truly is in the same way society was making, saying he should be ashamed, yep. right? In the same way that one prince that we don't even know, say, your fleas wouldn't even mourn you. Like, yep. he's betraying himself. And that's the thing that's like the, the 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 biggest thing where she's just like I she liked you dude she liked you she did and you had the chance to stop lying and you just lied some more yep and that is that's the character arc yeah he's got to overcome yeah there needs to be some some you know res- resistance <laughs> but speaking about this whole new world song I want you to take a guess you've already guessed one what are the three songs written by Howard Ashman is it? It's definitely this one. Nope. No. Okay. And I think the giveaway for this one is like this song is very traditional, and like Howard Ashman always has a little bit of like. So he he wrote Prince Ali, and he like packs in the like the witty lyrics. Yeah, right? and the references to the place that they actually are. Right. And with a whole new world, it's just very straightforward. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. Arabian for, Nights. He wrote Arabian yeah. Nights. Yep. And I don't want to say you got a friend just like me. It's not that one. I can't even think of the rest of the songs. It was that one. It was? Yep. You've got a friend just like me? Yep. So the songs that Tim Rice wrote were One Jump Ahead, this one. A Whole New World, and then all of the like reprises of those songs. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Howard Ashman, I feel like the th- his three songs are the three strongest in the movie. Yeah. And that's not to discount A Whole New World. It's a very beautiful song. It was the pop song. It yeah. was the one that, you know... It's the one that people still sing in karaoke today. This is true. <laughs> but I don't think it tells quite the story that the other songs tell. Yeah. Especially, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't serve the characters. Yeah. This is just a love song that, you know, begins and ends with Aladdin lying. After the song has, you know, ended. That's a good point. Yep. It's a love song that is bracketed by lying to the one you love. Yep. So, hey... The, I hope that sours a whole new world for you. <laughs> a whole new world. It's new because it's a lie. I'm spinning this new world with you right now. It's like I, my, my little sister once told me, like when I like really dig into 
you know, when I, read it, when I really critique a film, she's like, you don't make this fun anymore. <laughs> like, I feel like I just did that for a whole new world. Anyway. Hey, kids, I hope this is good for you. We're going to bum you out a little bit more um, because Aladdin not only lies to Jasmine, has to, you know, overcome that character flaw. Mm. He also lies to Genie. Yeah. So he makes a promise to Genie early in the movie. And what is that? He's a, he's an oath breaker. He's an oath breaker. He um, promises to, with his third wish, set him free. Genie. What would you wish for? Me? No one's ever asked me that before. Well, in my case... Forget it. What? No, I can't. Come on, tell me. Freedom. You're a prisoner? It's all part and parcel of the whole genie gig. Phenomenal cosmic powers! Aw, genie. That's terrible. But oh, to be free... Not to have to go, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? To be my own master. Such a thing would be greater than all the magic and all the treasures in all the world. Oh, he wanted that so desperately. What slave doesn't want freedom? And as you said, Aladdin breaks his oath. He promises he will grant Genie his freedom with his final wish. But when Aladdin realizes he's dug a hole too deep and he can't get out of it due to his lies, he says, Genie, I just can't do it. I need you. For me. And Jeannie says, like, the line that cut us to the heart when we watched it most recently. Jeannie, I can't keep this up on my own. I I can't wish you free. Fine, I understand. After all, you've lied to everyone else. Hey, I was beginning to feel left out. Ooh. Cut me deep, Jean. (laughs) Jean. That's the name of the Jeannie from, uh... From DuckTales. Yeah. I mean, I like that that line goes too hard. I was like, oh, I'm going to use that in a fight one day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's just like bottom of the barrel rat at this point. So the... Not to be trusted. If you haven't seen the movie, we're not going to spoil the end. Just know that these are the challenges that uh, that Aladdin has to overcome. His his deceit. Mm -hmm. uh, He needs to be true to himself. And he he needs to... He needs to overcome the evil sorcerer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's another thing. We haven't really talked about Jafar all that much. We've but yes, not. Jafar is always in the background, always being antagonistic. And he wants that lamp, you know. And in fairy tale fashion, he might just get that lamp. It makes him evil wishes. Can I get that lamp? Can I get that lamp? <laughs> <laughs> Can I pet that lamp? Corrupt that lamp? Okay. So, <laughs> instead of, you know, talking about the end of the movie, I want to have a little fun. Okay. I've devised a fun quiz for you. Robin Williams, we're going to shine a spotlight right on him as okay. the genie. Robin Williams is known for his impressions. Right. I have 15 total impressions that he does. These are all celebrity impressions in the movie. So, like, the thing that's novel about um, Robin Williams' role in this movie is that this had never been done before. Mm-hmm. In Dis- not to the scale. No, definitely not. Not in Disney movies, mm-hmm. especially. Like, Disney, I feel like for its entire history up to this point, always tried to maintain that timeless quality, right? We don't want to date ourselves. Like, yeah, we'll have some jazz, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, in the seventies or we'll, we'll we'll do a, just a little bit. Right. Right. Never did this, to this scale, did they allow a character in their movie to make so many pop culture references Mm -hmm. to to basically let a celebrity be the tent pole of the entire film. Right. Right. And they just let Robin Williams do it. Right. He was king. (laughs) He was king. And I feel like for a lot of reasons, 
people hold this movie up as like the funniest Disney mm-hmm. movie, you know? Like I was I was reading that some people say like this is so different from what Disney was doing that it's almost like a like a Warner Brothers cartoon, like a Looney Tunes. Like it has the I think William said that at one point. It has the Looney Tunes and he did say that. Yeah. We did watch we watched an interview where Robin Williams said like this movie has the Looney Tunes energy but with but it, it's but with Lo- Disney money. <laughs> no, it's 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 Warner Brothers in Disney drag. Yeah, that's exactly said. what he said. Yeah. And he's right because allowing Robin Williams to get away and Gilbert Godfrey to a lesser extent to basically do their thing in the movie. Disney 10 years before, 30 years before, you know, 80 years before, whatever, wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. So with that in mind, I want to spotlight all of Robin Williams' impressions. Okay. All of these were done with the help of an article on lasertimepodcast.com. Uh, I just want to shout out to the Laser Time Podcast. They are great people. And the uh, <laughs> the hard work of one Chris Antista has pulled together every single impression that robin williams has done so i couldn't have put all this together without him but i have all the i have all the clips of every impression and i want to see how many you can guess and then once you've exhausted your memory i will list them all out it's going to be very short that's fine so what do you got uh rodney dangerfield so move hey that's a good move i can't believe it i'm losing to a rug that's the genie playing chess with the magic carpet. I'm losing to a rug. <laughs> I was like, well, I was like oh. that, that is comedian Rodney Dangerfield, known for Rover Dangerfield. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing I've ever seen him in. Rapping Rodney, anyone? Nope. <laughs> Back to school, anyone? <laughs> yeah, and no, honestly, like, I feel like for our generation, Rodney Dangerfield was only famous for Rover Dangerfield. Yes, exactly. And to, for me, a lesser extent, Rappin' Rodney, because people used to sing that to me. That's weird. Rappin' Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> did you know Ro- Rodney Dangerfield had a rap song? I did not. It's terrible. All right, who else we got? Crypt Keeper? So it is not the Crypt Keeper, but I know who you're talking about. That is classic film era actor Peter Lorre. Mm. Uh, he has a very like particular way of speaking because he always played like a foreign type character. So he is known for roles like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Maltese Falcon, and Casablanca. Rule number three! I can't bring people back from the dead. It's not a pretty picture. I don't like doing it! Was that it? Yes. Yep, so that is who that is apparently an impression of. That's all I know. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like, so the thing where you're like, oh yeah, it dates us up. Like, even when I was a kid, I was like, I don't get these references. I laughed because they were like, obviously punchy and even when i watched it was like that's a funny delivery i get that he's doing an impression of someone but that's a funny delivery i am not you sir keep your in mind all the things but you're right as a kid i got none of these yes not a single impression in this movie there's one point where the genie's head is replaced with pinocchio Right. And he says, you know, you're a liar. And yeah. Like, Whoop, and the, the nose comes out. And that was funny because I had seen Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. And it's Disney's Pinocchio. And then he pulls Sebastian the Crab out at one point. So those are those are references that I got. But right. the, all the impressions, you're nope. right. Like over my head as Completely. a kid. And as yeah. an adult, same. <laughs> well, some of these I, I get now as an adult and they're funny. So it's, it's, it's layered, you see. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to run through these one by one. And I'll explain where, where these come from. So the first... One I have here is the voice of Walter Brennan, 
Walter Brennan was a character actor known for playing old prospectors and westerns like Rio Bravo and Red River. He faced the galloping horde! <laughs> faced the galloping horde! So that is in the song Prince Ali. We have that like old prospector voice. The one that everyone does. That's true. Everybody does do it. <laughs> that is Walter Brennan. Next up, we have William F. Buckley Jr. He was the founder of the National Review Magazine and in 1955 host of the conservative talk show Firing Line. <laughs> You're going to grant me any three wishes I want, right? Uh, almost. There are a few uh, provisos, a, a couple of quid pro quos. A couple of uh, pre quo pro. <laughs> uh, I knew that was an impression. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so, like, apparently this guy, like, he was a very uppity, uh, pretentious, intellectual type who hosted this talk show. And um, I guess lefty comedians like Robin Williams like to make fun of his voice hmm. and make fun of him because he's very pretentious. <laughs> so that's where that came from. Next up, we have... Carol Channing, Broadway and film star, known for her starring role in Hello, Dolly, and much, much more. You were choosing magic carpet for all your travel needs. Don't stand until the rug has come to a complete stop. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. So, I don't know if my mom knows that's Carol Channing, but my mom said that for years. <laughs> goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye now. Bye. <laughs> so that that is a very that, that one that one speaks to me on a nostalgic <laughs> level. <laughs> all right, next up, we got Robert De Niro. We all know Robert De Niro. I do know Robert De Niro. Yep, actor. Uh, specifically, uh, Jeannie does a bit out of The Taxi Driver. You're talking to me? Are you looking at me? Did you rub my lamp? Did you wake me up? Did you bring me here? And all of a sudden, you're walking out on me? I don't think so. Not right now. You're getting your wishes, so sit down! Yikes. <laughs> That's another thing. My, my my mom quoted this this movie a lot. Actually, she goes, "You wake well, me up." You it was bring the first movie she uh, went to with a newborn. This is and, true. A, well, an infant, not a newborn. So yes, that is that is also very nostalgic for me. <laughs> All right, this this one I thought I think this one dates. The, this one is the most dated because it's like the most of the time for mm. 1992. Arsenio Hall, <laughs> comedian, talk show host, Arsenio Hall show. So uh, he. This is when Aladdin is um, deciding on his first wish. Right. Now, is that an official wish? Say the magic words. Genie, I wish for you to make me a prince. All right! Yo, yo, woo, woo, woo. So, Arsenio yo, yo, Hall, yo, 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 his, on his talk show, the people in, like, the studio audience, they would, like, bark like dogs. Like, hoo, hoo, hoo. Okay. So, uh, not only does he do that, that thing, the genie basically just becomes... Arsenio Hall. So he yeah. looks like Arsenio Hall. So yeah, like as a kid, I had no idea who Arsenio <laughs> Hall was. As an adult, it I, I still don't know. I didn't watch the Arsenio Hall show. Yeah. Like no one no one from my it seems like no one in my friend group did. So like for the most part, that's just a bygone yeah. reference. Like, okay. Alright, next up. Mary Hart, host of Entertainment Tonight and a frequent host of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Oh yeah, I remember that. He's got 75 golden cows. Don't they look lovely, June? Purple peacocks, he's got 50 Fabulous, Harry, I love the feathers. Gosh. So I always thought that was, um, what's her name? Um, Joan Rivers. Yeah. Like, it has a very Joan Rivers thing, but I guess that was more of a Mary Hart impression, you know? And, and yeah. Huh. 
so it could be one or the other, but I guess Mary Hart was more frequently associated with at the, least then. Yeah, the Macy's parade. So, but now Joan Rivers. If it had been like a red carpet event, maybe it would have been Joan Rivers. But there you go. All right, next up we got Groucho Marx of the Marx Brothers. I remember you saying Groucho Marx. Yeah, uh, Groucho Marx was a comedian and host of the '50s game show You Bet Your Life. This is, this is a, a quick one, actually. No substitutions, exchanges, or refunds. <laughs> now I know I'm dreaming. So, like, the genie, like, walks past the screen with the, like, Groucho Marx had the, like, the... Mustache? The mustache and the glasses and the, right. the big nose. And I, I guess he, he used to host a sh- this game show where he had, like, a, a bird puppet. Oh. <laughs> and the bird puppet is in the shot in Aladdin. So, oh. I don't know. Like, that That's what, that's the giveaway for that. All right, next up. Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. Actor. And he's doing <laughs> very clearly Jack Nicholson. Genie, I need help. All right, Sparky, here's the deal. If you want to court the little lady, you got to be a straight shooter. Do you got it? Um, I got a funny story about Jack Nicholson in Disney. So I have a very uh, vivid memory of going to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Maybe like eight or nine, maybe. You know, I was old enough. My, my little sister was just old enough to start, like, going to Disneyland and, like, being able to enjoy it. So, I don't know, maybe she was four, so I would have been ten. Mm-hmm. So, we go to Disneyland, and we're in Toontown, right? And in Disneyland Toontown, you can go visit Minnie, Mickey's house and Minnie's house and, you know, Donald Duck's ship, right? So, we're waiting in line to go to Minnie's house. And how it works is the queue to the line, like, wraps around the house, and you're outside, and you go through her garden, and then... You're stopped at the door by a cast member, mm-hmm. a Disneyland cast member, who tells you to wait. And then when he gets the queue, you're allowed in. And you right. can kind of just explore the house at your leisure. You're, the house isn't crowded. Yeah. So we're waiting outside the house, and the cast member is talking to my parents. And the cast member makes a Shining reference. <laughs> he goes, like, here's Johnny. <laughs> and over my head, yeah. right? I'm a 10-year-old. And I was like, what is that? And my parents are trying to explain to me that... It was a line from the movie The Shining, which was also a reference to Johnny Carson of The Tonight Show. And, and I'm, a, I'm a kid going, what is any of these things? Words. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also funny now because I know how cast members are supposed to act at Disneyland. <laughs> Disney takes their, their yeah. kayfabe very seriously yeah, at Disneyland. They're basically, like, Disney has very strange rules. Like, employees at Disneyland... They're not employees. They're cast members. The whole thing's a show, yeah, right? When yeah. you're you're on set when you're in the park invisible. Right. When you're backstage, you're backstage. Yeah. So when you are on set, you're meant to be in character the whole time. Right. So this young man... Broke character. He broke character. He was supposed to be Minnie's friend at her house, <laughs> right? He He's not supposed to be somebody who knows about The Shining because... <laughs> The Shining does not exist in Minnie's house. That's exactly true. <laughs> so this man broke character, and I bet, you, I bet you, if I had told this story uh, back then, he would have been fired. He would definitely have been fired. I'm glad you shut your ten year old mouth. <laughs> People need jobs. Yes. So it's just, hard to get jobs at Disney. Just a funny story. I don't want to. So next up, Ed Sullivan, who was a variety show host. Uh, he was famously he he broke the Beatles in the U.S. Like, For some reason, my brain imagined him catching beetles, like bugs, and breaking them. I was like, ah, oh, he's a sociopath. No, no, no. Like, he, he had them play uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand on TV. 
Mm. And it started Beatlemania. <laughs> oh, broke them in a good way. Not like yeah. Yoko Ono. Got it. <laughs> but never duplicated. Duplicated. Genie of the Lamp. Right here, direct from the lamp. Right here for your very much wish fulfillment. Thank you. Thank you. Was that him? The I thank you? Th- I think so. I don't know. Uh, boomers, tell me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm not an Ed Sullivan uh, we can expert. <laughs> uh, next up, this is this is an easy one. I feel like even as a kid, I probably understood this one. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah. Bodybuilder, actor, governator. <laughs> <laughs> what would you wish of me? Be ever impressive. Yep, and he turns into an Arnold caricature. Yep. Bodybuilder type. The ever impressive. I feel like even when he says like cosmic power, like that's a little bit Arnold. Maybe, yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah. A little bit. And last but not least, Senor Wences. Who? <laughs> a ventriloquist. Oh. Renowned ventriloquist. Jeff Dunham? No. <laughs> Jeff Dunham wasn't was he a was he a No, I don't think so. I don't know. No, there's that I feel like he's new. Uh, Jeff Dunham. Anyway, yeah. Very very quick this is a very quick one. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the, the genie pulls out a ventriloquist dummy and like... I don't even know what he said. I'm going to play that again. Can you tell me what he says here? It's not English. <laughs> and that is all of Robin Williams' impressions in Aladdin. I hope you enjoyed that. I did enjoy that. I hope you learned something today. I learned nothing. <laughs> Alrighty. So, with... The talk of Robin Williams, we also have to talk about the behind-the-scenes beef between Robin Williams and Disney. Right. So as we mentioned at the, you know, at the start of this segment, um, we had said that Robin Williams signed on to do the role of the genie mm-hmm. with a few conditions, requests of Disney. Provisos. Uh, provisos, if you uh, quid pro quos. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Robin Williams agreed to star in the film on two conditions. One, that his name or image not be used for marketing. Mm -hmm. And two, that his supporting character not take up more than 25% of space on advertising artwork. Because Williams' film Toys was scheduled to release one month after Aladdin's debut, and he did not want to overshadow that movie because Toys was like his pet project. Yeah. Disney went back on both. (laughs) Yeah. So they... Not only used his name in prominent uh, advertisements, a- advertising materials. He, they also had his character on, you know, McDonald's toys, and yeah. on the poster. And, yeah, and his name was the biggest Aladdin, Robin Williams in Aladdin. Right, and so that understandably ticked him off. Ticked him off pretty bad. So he basically said because they reneged, reneged on their agreement. Uh, he. Like he he told he basically he went to the press and said, Hey, they broke their promises. I don't want to work with them anymore. He called out Jeffrey Katzenberg, Petty A Hole, <laughs> on stage at the Golden Globes, I believe. Yeah. Like called him out publicly. Yeah. And uh yeah, he just wasn't happy about it. No, and he, was, and he not, was not silent about it either. No, he was not. So Disney tried fruitlessly to smooth things over. Uh one by sending him a Pablo Picasso painting worth more than one million dollars at the time. Yikes! Uh, that was and he. He even said it's like it's not about the money; it's about the principle. Yeah. So it took a few things to happen before he finally was in the good graces of. That he Disney. was able to forgive Disney, right? So one, it took Jeffrey Katzenberg leaving Disney and his replacement Joe Roth 
offering a public apology to mend things between Williams and the company in 1996. A public apology where he, where as the com- the company Disney said it was at fault. Yes. Like stating that they broke. Right. That they, much like Aladdin, lied to everyone, including Genie. I'm going to play that clip again. <laughs> Fine, I understand. After all, you've lied to everyone else. Hey, I was beginning to feel left out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so like in the meantime, between like 92 and 96, there were other Aladdin properties, including a, a direct-to-video f- film yeah. sequel. Robin Williams wasn't in that. No, he was As not. the genie. They replaced him with Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer Simpson. That's why That's why the genie sounds like Homer Simpson in that movie. Because <laughs> he is, in fact, Homer Simpson. Right. Uh, but that is... Really, all I have to say about Aladdin, in terms of the film itself, yeah. would you recommend it? Yeah. I also would recommend it. Um, it. It's not the best of the Disney Renaissance, but it's dang good. Yeah. Robin Williams is worth the ticket. <laughs> but don't tell him that. Oh. That's not what I meant. I just meant because he wanted people to go for other reasons. Okay. Well. Re- rest in power. Yes. Uh, but how did it do? Haunt Katzenberg. <laughs> They're both haunting Katzenberg. <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg has a closet full of ghosts that just haunt him constantly. (laughs) Anyway, um, Aladdin was the highest grossing film of 1992, earning over $504 million worldwide. Um, Upon release, it became the first animated feature to reach the half billion dollar mark and was the highest grossing animated film of all time until it was surpassed two years later. By Tarzan. No. (laughs) Uh, like The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, it was a hit with critics, with almost universal praise going to Mr. Williams' performance. Mm. Yeah. Well-deserved for that. Yeah. Uh, the Los Angeles Times said, quote, Aladdin is a film of wonders. Oh, gosh. <laughs> to see it is to be is to be the smallest child, open-mouthed at the screen sense of magic, as well as the most knowing adult, uh, eager to laugh at some surprisingly sly humor. <laughs> I was like, that's... That's a pretty dang good quote. It is. It's even got a corny pun in there. <laughs> uh, however, some critics criticized the film's use of ethnic stereotypes. Well. Yeah. For example, Grandpa Ebert said, quote, Most of the Arab characters have exaggerated facial characteristics, hooked nose, glowering brows, thick lips, but Aladdin and the princess look like white American teenagers. Grandpa Ebert's not wrong. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the movie does have some problematic elements in that mm-hmm. way. Um, in, in fact, like they've edited the movie, you know, since release, uh, I was reading that the original song, Arabian Nights, mm-hmm. like that first song, um, when it released in 92, it had the phrase or it had the, the line where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. And then by July 93, when it was re-released, they had already changed it yeah. to where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. <laughs> well... And then interestingly, we watched this on Disney Plus the other day, mm-hmm. and Disney Plus now has a disclaimer at the beginning. Oh. Like a content warning for the movie. Does and I it? was like, yeah, it does. And I was like, that's pretty cool. So let me read this. It says, this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Okay. I was like, that, that, that's something. And it has sparked conversation. Uh, I mean, that's true. This podcast this makes is- me, we, we haven't seen the 2019 version of it, but I wonder if... 
It's more culturally sensitive. Yeah. It, they did cast people of color. They did. So that's good. Aladdin was nominated for five Academy Awards, winning for Best Original Score and Best Original Song for... You got a friend, I've got a, I've got a genie. Nope. It was a whole new world. Yeah, it was a whole new world. That was my second guess. The safe choice. <laughs> um, it won the same two awards at that year's Golden Globes, while Robin Williams himself won a special achievement award for the role. Huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it all, that song also won four Grammys. Wow. Um, well, not, not that song, like the, the, the movie and the song. Okay. Um, it won Best Soundtrack Album Song of the Year, Best Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal, and Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or for Television. Okay. Yeah. People oh. loved A Whole New World. All right, Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> and Warner Brothers cartoon legend Chuck Jones once called the film the funniest feature ever made. Oh. That was was, that's nice. Nice little nod. And what of the legacy of Aladdin? Just like with Beauty and the Beast, I feel like it branched out into every medium known to man. Yeah, like fan fiction. Do you want to talk about some fan fiction? <laughs> sure, why not? Honestly, there's so much. There's a, uh, It was so difficult finding fan fiction. Not difficult finding fan fiction. It was just really because the 2019 version, uh, the remake, has come. I was specifically looking for, like, there are some, uh, on AO3, I couldn't even for the longest time just find the um, archive for 92 Aladdin. It was all 2019. And I like finally found it. I had to like be very specific. And I had to actually use the computer rather than be on my phone. It's Um, like when you went to the Disney store in 2017. They didn't have like action figures of Beauty and the Beast from the cartoon. It was all... Emma Watson. (laughs) Emma Watson's face. Yes, I would like an Emma Watson bell doll, please. (laughs) But yeah, like, so when I was going through things, right, I was like specifically checking like the year, not the update year, but the uh, published year. So anything before 2019 to see what we could. There was, um... I was going to say on, on a, like on a percentage scale of sexy to non-sexy, how, how much sexy were there in your searches? Depends on what you find sexy. So... I was using on, I went on AO3 first because that's my preferred site and I did a filter by hits and my guy, most of the stuff there, like the, the tags were all non-con underage violence and things of the like. I'm not even going to read the titles of some of these things. They're, they're so dirty. They were so, they were so messy. And then on top of that, most of them are crossovers, like, there's, it's so hard, especially in that, to find just standalone Aladdin stuff. It's just, like, crossovers with other Disney uh, properties and other cartoons and da-da-da-da-da. And I just, those are not for me. Like, I hate... Like, here's the thing. I, for, I feel like for an entire generation, Aladdin and Princess Jasmine were some kind of awakening for, for many for any, many young people. That's fair. She was in a red suit and kissed an old man, so... I have that, I have that clip. <laughs> Jafar... I never realized how incredibly handsome you are. Hmm, that's better. Now, pussycat, tell me more about myself. You're tall, and your beard is so twisted. So yes, I, I, I can understand that scene happening, and then many people wanting to write sexy fan fiction yeah the problem is a lot of them have to do with brothels oh it is also i mean it is also like 
Yeah. Anyway. Old timey. <laughs> so it's just like a lot of stuff. So I dipped from there and went to fanfiction.net to see if I could find um, something with like a little more filter friendly things. And I found a couple. Um, I actually want to play my own little game. I'm going to read you the titles and the short synopsis for four different fanfics. And then I'm going to ask you a question. So okay. just pay attention. First one, Queen of Diamonds. What if Jafar was too late finding the diamond in the rough? An AU where Aladdin and Jasmine make good on their escape, and this time Jasmine is the one doing the lying. Mm. The, Ara- the Twelfth Arabian Night. On a journey to Agrabah, twins Aladdin and Amira are separated in a sandstorm. Believing the other is dead, Amira disguises herself as a boy and enters the service of none other than the Lord of Black Sands, who seeks to rule Agrabah by marrying the princess. Havoc ensues, inspired by the Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. Interesting, interesting. The Tailman. Abu has always been the one with the most sense of this crime duo. Al is lucky he can only understand half of the sass that comes from his mouth most days. But this isn't most days. AU, where instead of being an elephant for half the tale, Genie turns Abu into a human, or rather a body servant for Prince Ali, who does not hesitate to tell a prince or a princess that they are idiots. So Goku? <laughs> and Sultana. There are three things that have never been seen. A decade without war, a living settlement, a living settlement in the cursed eighth desert, a woman ruling in her own right. Okay, good. Which one of those fan fictions did I write? Oh man, <laughs> I think, I think the last one. Ah, Sultana. Yeah. There, just for the readers, listeners, there are three things that have never been seen: a decade without war, a living settlement in the cursed eighth desert, and a woman ruling her own right. Incorrect. Mm. But that does sound fun. So, did you write the Abu one? <laughs> Why do you think I wrote that one? I don't know. Did you write it? <laughs> I did. Okay. <laughs> um, so, and not this, this. Like, did you just make that up today or you no. actually wrote this? No, I wrote this when I was younger. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. And you kept this from me. <laughs> we're sharing that on Twitter. No, we're not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Anyway, <laughs> the one fact fan fiction I ever wrote. Why? I don't know. Anyway. Um, How many hits does it have? <laughs> none. Oh. Or does it? You'll never find it. <laughs> Did I even give you the right title? Anyway, so um, I think like like this list of stuff sounds really interesting, though, it does, right? Like yeah. except mine, it's but a lot, a lot of girl power. There's a because yeah. you know I think which I feel like is really interesting considering right like this story is Aladdin's. Right. But, like, the central part of it is this, like, very much this princess. Like, I totally want to read Sultana, where it's just like, yeah, why can't Jasmine rule? She clearly has ideas. <laughs> Actually, we don't know that. We don't really see her inner workings or whatever. Yeah. But still, like, why not? Right. Or um, any of these other things. Or, like, the the Twelfth Night uh, rewrite is very much, like, um, crossing over with uh, the TV show. Oh, the, no. Okay. Yeah, the there the there was like an antagonist in the TV show called um, Mozenrath. Don't remember. Yeah, it's fine. But like, and even with that, there were so many when I was like looking at the fan fictions that were just kind of like <sighs> retelling of the third movie, and I was like, wait, but I want the first movie kind of thing. So yeah. it's got like it's got legs. It does, and I think 
I was gonna say, especially like trying to make Jasmine the focal, the focus, mm-hmm. right? Like that is one of the failings of this movie is it doesn't give Princess Jasmine enough to do, right? right? I I have not seen the live action remake that Disney made, um, but I know that they give Jasmine a song. I've yeah. heard it's hit and miss. But I don't disparage them for trying yeah. to give Jasmine more of a focus and at least give her a song. Yeah. I, I get it. But yes, so <laughs> Aladdin has a long legacy and a lot of that legacy has to do with sexy fan fiction. That's very true. <laughs> Mine wasn't sexy. <laughs> okay, well let's talk about uh, official stuff and some, you know, semi-official stuff. Okay. All right, first off, some media historians cite Aladdin and Williams' role as the genie as the leading to the celebrification of certain of later animated feature films. Right. Yeah. So the idea that an animated film is marketed with the cast in mind, like, mm-hmm. you know, this movie has Steve Carell. Right. Right. Mike Myers. Something, something, right. You know, so Robin Williams led the charge on that one, you know, not intentionally, mm-hmm. but that but especially not, especially against his will. But that is kind of the case. Yeah. Like by, you know, 10 years later with Shrek, almost every animated movie was marketed with its voice cast. Not yeah. with the story, not with the studio. The the, the voices. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, Aladdin spawned two directed video sequels, The Return of Jafar in 1994, mm-hmm. and the King of uh, Aladdin and The King of Thieves in 1996. I think I've seen both of these start to finish, but I don't remember them very well. I don't remember Jafar very well, but I've definitely watched The King of Thieves several I remember times. when The King of Thieves came out, I begged my aunt while I was visiting my aunt's house for us to borrow it from the video store. Not mm-hmm. realizing that, like, you're only there today. If you rent this movie from her video store, she has to return it. Yeah. And you can't watch it because yeah. you're at her house. Yeah. But, you know, I- I'm pretty sure I watched it at some point. <laughs> um, in 2007, Disney also released a direct-to-video anthology film called Disney Princess Enchanted Tales Follow Your Dreams. What? Which featured two separate princess stories starring Princess Jasmine and Princess Aurora from Sleeping Beauty, respectively. Okay. I've never heard of this. Me neither. I've seen it. Um, if you have seen the Princess Jasmine story, uh, let us know. Why did they even raise Aurora from the dead? <laughs> like... <laughs> I don't know. Um, an animated Aladdin show, as we mentioned, debuted on the Disney Channel in 1994, set after the events of The Return to Jafar. Mm-hmm. I watched that show a bunch. <laughs> Um, it it also crossed over with Hercules, the animated series, oh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. also was really cool at the time. Crossovers, ugh. Um, there have been several Aladdin video games, most notably the dueling releases on Super Nintendo Sega Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1992, this was the height of the console wars. Mm-hmm. Nintendo had the Super Nintendo, Sega had the Genesis, right? And right. Genesis was playing dirty. <laughs> they were saying we're the edgier, cooler, more '90s company. Right. We we do what Nintendo don't. Okay. That was their marketing strategy, and a few things led many children to jump ship from Nintendo because they thought it was too kiddie and go to mm. Sega. Aladdin was one of those things. Like there was Mortal Kombat, which you could yeah put a code in and get the blood back. Right. Right. With. Aladdin, there were two different games, two different developers, two different, like two very different games, mm-hmm. right? In the Sega Genesis Aladdin game, you pull out that his sword and you swashbuckle your way, right? Oh, like no. he, he gets to use his sword and have fun. In the in uh, the the SNES version, 
Aladdin do- can't use a sword. He can only throw apples. <laughs> and I bet as a kid, it's like, I want to play the game where you can use a sword. No, apples. And apples. apparently both of those games are pretty dang good. Huh. So it's like back in the day when, you know, they, they were releasing good tie-in games and not crap. Huh. So we'll play that on that video game episode you're going to have with your friends. <laughs> Disney Paris got something we should have got, but a walkthrough att- attraction based on Aladdin uh, called Le Passage Enchant de Aladdin okay. <laughs> debuted at Disneyland Paris in 1993. All right. I'm very upset that we didn't get that. Oh, no. Um, a Broadway production based on the movie debuted in 2011 to mixed reception. Um, and then a truncated version of that musical called Aladdin Jr. <laughs> was produced by Musical Theater International for their Broadway Junior series. Okay. Broadway for kids. Oh, like all that. Uh, The one you've been waiting for. In 2013, a musical parody of Aladdin and Wicked called Twisted, the untold story of a royal vizier, debuted at Chicago's Greenhouse Theater. We watched it on YouTube. (laughs) Right after we rewatched Aladdin. (laughs) And it's... Pretty dang good. You, it's the whole. It's it's Aladdin, but from Jafar's point of view, and it paints Aladdin like an arrogant jerk. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine like a ditzy idiot. Yeah. Like a valley girl, essentially. Yeah. Um, and Jafar is just a well-meaning politician trying to do his best. To... I know it sounds like that's not a thing, well-meaning politician, but he really is. Yeah, and he's got a heart of gold, and everyone <laughs> treats him like crap. Yes. Um, warning, there is a lot of cussing in this. If you don't like cussing, don't watch it's, it. Yeah, it, it's it's not safe for work. It's, it's, it's pretty adult, but yeah. it's really funny and really well done. And I was going to say... In our Beauty and the Beast episode, I complained about bad faith criticisms, mm-hmm. right? And like pointing out the inconsistencies and flaws in a fairy tale. Right. Doing yeah. so in a dumb Cinemasins video isn't fun. But doing it as a musical, <laughs> poking fun at the inconsistencies of Aladdin in a musical form, that's how you do it. Because <laughs> it's all tongue in cheek and fun. Right. Everyone's in on the joke and we're all having fun. Yeah. That's how you do it. So we're we highly recommend fun. Twisted. <laughs> Um, and in 2019, Disney released their live-action adaptation of Aladdin starring Will Smith as I mean, the genie. But he wasn't the star. I mean, he, as, as far as He's the, the as far as the uh, the marketing, yeah, and yeah, he, he got he got Williams. Yeah. Um, but he was okay with it. <laughs> a sequel, a prequel, and a Disney Plus spinoff are all currently in development. Oh wow! Oh dear! Oh dear! I mean, I haven't seen the. The version, so I don't have a, an idea of I whether I like it or not. But I don't like the idea of it. Yeah, <laughs> I've complained fine. about it already, though. <laughs> okay, so um, this is actually going to be the last time we talk about the creative team of John Musker and Ron Clements, the directors of this movie. Mm-hmm. So I would like to talk about what they've done since okay 1992. The duo continued to work together on Disney animated features for the next 25 years, having written and directed Hercules, oh. Treasure Planet. Oh. The Princess and the Frog. Oh. And Moana. Hmm. <laughs> uh, in 2019, Musker announced his retirement from Walt Disney Animation Studios, and he is currently animating his own original short by hand. Ooh. And Clements appears to still be at Disney, helping shepherd adaptations of his directed works. Cool. Yeah. So, Roger and Clements, they are some of the, like, Disney golden children. They've done some great work together. Thanks, guys. And that is Aladdin. We did it! And we're just about ready to cap off this three-hour show, probably. (laughs) Hey, but thanks for sticking with us to the end here, folks. So we're going to get some business out of the way. Like, Yeah, like, who 
one. Oh, I did. Hands down. Like, you can't argue this. Like, Buffy's funny and fun, but we complained for, like, 45 minutes about the writing of that movie. We can't. How dare you, you can't. dismiss me out of hand? How dare you dismiss me out of hand? I can argue it, but I won't. You know why? One reason. I feel like Howard Ashman deserves a win. He does. I don't feel like Petty A-Hole <laughs> deserves a win. Well, no, he lost, but... it. he lost it all on Quibi last year, so... So I give this to you only in deference to Howard Ashman. Rest in peace, Howard Ashman. <laughs> Rest in peace, but keep that haunting going strong. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, then uh, runners, runners up. up. So my love, my dear, my cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you're my turkey sandwich. Oh dear. <laughs> um. You had runners up were Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino. We talked about him. Yeah, that's it's it's a good. It, that's the thing. It's like it's a it's a recent runner up. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I've seen that like you know college on. Yeah, so, like it, it it never it will never surpass Aladdin. I don't think. I just realized that at some point we're gonna have a whole history of Tarantino. What? Maybe one day. <sighs> anyway, my cousin Vinny. Great movie. So good. And I, like my dad watched it a bunch on TV. So that's how I know about that one. And then another Robin Williams movie, Fern Gully. Fern Gully with the rapping, rapping batty. <laughs> rapping Rodney the Bat. <laughs> I'm batty. <laughs> Fern Gully. It seemed like every elementary classroom I was in, yeah. we always watched Fern Gully. Yeah. Every year. It was like a thing. We watched it in, I watched it in preschool, I watched it in kindergarten, I watched it every year. They wanted you to take care of the environment. Yeah. (laughs) So like a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in in Ferngully and I have not, I have not gone back and revisited it recently. Same actually. Yeah. If we ever do runner up shows, Mm -hmm. that that might be an interesting one. Maybe because Ferngully is also one of my runners up. There you go. What do you got? Ferngully. Yep. (laughs) Three Ninjas. The original? Yeah. With uh. With a young, um, oh no, I'm thinking, no, of, no. I'm thinking of Surf Ninjas. I was Never. like, you're thinking of something else because yeah. I was like, yeah, all of them are young. They're three ninja boys. Yeah, I, I did watch Surf Ninjas in martial arts class. I watched three ninjas. I watched a lot of them, like even a lot of their spinoffs because my grandpa really enjoyed them. And when he like babysat us, we would watch Did you watch them. the one with Hulk Hogan? Yes. <laughs> I've watched all of them. Okay, maybe not all of them, but I feel like I've definitely seen five. So, <laughs> yikes. Um, and... Okay, kids, I just want you to know, we didn't have to watch Buffy. We didn't have to. We didn't. There was another movie that I watched just as much as Buffy. It was a tie. You had to roll for it. I had to roll for it, flip a coin, whatever you want to call. I let the universe decide what I would subject my husband to and you guys. And Buffy won. But it could have been, big girls don't cry, they get even. And I was still subjected to it. Yeah, I made him watch it because I love it. It's that really movie. not that bad of a movie. It's a really it's good a movie. movie. <laughs> like three minutes into it, it's like this looks like a real movie. They probably had a bigger budget than than, than Buffy looked it up. They had six million dollars less than Buffy, and this looks like a real movie. Yeah, it's like you know, pretty safe, but you know, clever enough uh, kid comedy yeah. drama thing. It's really family enjoyable. comedy. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's really enjoyable. It's I really enjoy it. Like if you if you guys can, it's like oh, we rented it on Amazon. It's a, it's like a pretty low key, not not a bad movie at all. Yeah, it's not a bad movie at all. I enjoy it. Like the, it feels like it's right in that soft spot of me of like 
Buffy is on the, the side of like bad movies that I don't know why I keep watching, but I enjoy them. And then sentimental movies that are about family or like building family. And tell the listeners what the name of that movie is again. Big girls don't cry. They get even. There you go. Yep. Look it up. It doesn't even have a Rotten Tomatoes score. It doesn't. It it's should. That, it's that low key. It's so low budget. Oh, that, okay. That's all of it, huh? Yeah. All right. So. Plugs. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at Media Made Show. And you can follow us on Instagram at Media Made Show. We have polls and videos and images and fun <laughs> little things like that. Um, be sure, hey, if you're not subscribed to the show on your platform of choice, please do so. That helps us out. Um, leave us a review on iTunes if you can. Helps us or on Spotify yes. or Google Play. Share us with your friends. Share us with your friends. Tell, Share us with your friends that like podcasts. If you all tell one friend, uh, we, we'd, be, we'd be in business. <laughs> <laughs> Help us be in business, kids. Don't you want something nice for your birthday? I can't give you something nice for your birthday if I'm not in business. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and hey, um, on, on social media, just tell us what your movies of 1992 are. You yeah. Know? And when we do music and TV, tell us what your albums and shows are. Yeah. It's, it's fun to know what other people, what media invaded their lives. Yes. What was your, fir- what was the first movie you were seeing, you saw, saw in the theater? <laughs> it's a family affair. Were you Let's a baby? <laughs> were you a baby? <laughs> <laughs> it ends up being seven because your parents wanted to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's it for plugs. Oh, our personal, personal stuff yeah so you can follow me personally on twitter at rod the master um i write for a video game website called zelda dungeon.net we focus all on the legend of zelda video game series um a lot of a lot of aladdin energy in that <laughs> so if you like aladdin you might like that video game i also host a wrestling podcast or wrestling youtube show called keep kayfabe that's k-a-y-f-a-b-e it is a show where we explore the careers and characters of our favorite wrestlers. So we are going, uh, we've been looking at the career of Eddie Guerrero. We might be looking at someone else very, very soon. So check that out. What do you got? Um, I am boring and only have one thing where my husband has lots of plates in the air. I have a YouTube channel on YouTube called Taming Tales, where I tame some tales. Where I tell stories um, and put them to video of bad animation. And um, also where I vlog through the process of me writing a novel. So if you would like to see any of that, see my face, which is weird, but whatever, I'm there. Taming Tales on YouTube. Yep. And with that, we're going to close out with the one song we need to close out with. And that is Friend Like Me, the, the genie song from Aladdin. Um, so... We hope you, pre- you we hope you like the show. This was a big one. Thank you for bearing with us. Thank you, kids. This is our probably our longest episode ever. Oh, whose fault is that? It's both of our faults. <laughs> we watched a lot of things and we read a lot of things. Uh, so with that, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time with the mo- the music of 1992. With with, thank kids. Never had a friend. Never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend. Never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend.